Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Well, uh, you know, a little out of sorts because we're doing this on, you know, I'm, I'm a creature of habit. I know you are. Uh, Tyler Smith. Uh, and we usually do this on Thursdays. And now we're doing it on Sunday. The night that this, in, the, the the night indeed that this episode will go up. So mm-hmm. I have to go home and... You gotta get to it. And do that. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, it's Sunday, so I'm having to delay... TV time with my girlfriend, mm-hmm. where I, we would watch uh, The Amazing Race. That's right. And Treme and Homeland. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, other than that, I'm in a very good mood. I was excited at the idea of uh, suddenly my Thursday night is free. And then my boss said, hey, I've got some more work for you to do. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll just, uh, so I just well, sat and worked. We'll get to why I couldn't do the show uh, this past Thursday in a minute. Uh, but first, uh, I, I want, I, I think we should. Um, talk about uh our guest oh okay we have a guest here yes all right do you want to, do you want to talk about i don't i is? don't want to but i guess i will <laughs> so uh listeners all right so you listen to us you enjoy us i assume um there's no guarantee that you head on over to the website on a regular basis we'd like you to yeah you should if you don't you're stupid if you don't you kind of are a little dumb but uh, if you, for those that do, for those in the know, as I like to say, um, I don't say that. Uh, you let you you head on over. You you read articles by David. Most of them are by David because it's he's a machine. I don't think that's true. That most of them are by me. I think a plurality of them are by me. Okay. I think I probably have more stuff than anyone else, but I don't have more than half of the stuff on the website. There's no way. Uh, any given week, like when I post a bunch of stuff, yeah, I'll, I'll, I, I find myself I, saw my, I find myself typing by David Bax a lot. What do you think, Scott? Wait, more who, than he should be, I'll say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I, I do more than I should. No, I'm saying he's typing your name more than what I guess is saying. Yeah, you do more than you should. I should say I've been taking all of Matt Warren's articles and attributing them to you. Is that weird? <laughs> I just feel like yeah. uh, what's you know. weird is that I haven't noticed. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, and so some of uh, among our other uh, prolific writers, uh, one of them is uh, Scott Nye, who was here uh, with us last week for our, uh, I believe, our Halloween episode, uh, and he's back this week, uh, and it's very exciting, and we'll get to why in a moment. But uh, first, let's say hello to Scott Nye. Scott, how you doing? Great, very excited to be here. Also, explain why I'm writing too much on the website. <laughs> that was a joke, David. I'm, I'm, <laughs> it, it, I was I was joking. All right, there's no it, foundation it, it, in that joke. Cut me to the quick. Now, now, <laughs> David, there's a way for both of us to be insulted here. Perhaps <laughs> he's saying you write too much by virtue of me not writing enough. I think what he's saying is that he would like more of the screening invites. That I, I just take. picked up a very juicy one. So uh, you sure did the yeah. new uh, Olivier. I was Sage, very excited so. to see that in my yes. inbox. Oh, I wish that I. I think. I think that was on a day that I was seeing some piece of shit. I'm not at all interested <laughs> in. <laughs> I felt like guilty that I. It, that happens often where I'll like RSVP to something that I'll, I'll be like, all right, I'll take the bullet for this or or whatever, and then yeah. I'll get later. I'll get like there was recently. Um, Anna Karenina came up, and yeah. uh, I would have liked to, even though I'm uh, on the fence about, or, or not on the fence, I'm mostly negative about Joe Wright. Hmm. I'm still very interested in Anna Karenina, and uh, I was like, I could either RSVP to Anna Karenina and send this other one that I already RSVP'd to somewhere else, or do the ethical thing. 
and I've and I've never I've never done that. I've never like backed out on something I don't want to see in order to see something I do. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I hope you appreciate that, Scott. That's why. Now you that I know things. it, I can appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I pass up so many because I have a lot of obligations throughout uh, the week, uh, but I pass up so many that like. Probably every fourth or fifth, I'm like, I should probably take this, <laughs> regardless of what that fourth or fifth is, and that's how I wind up seeing Super Capitalist. Yeah. I was very curious why you picked that one up. And, uh, and the paper boy. Well, the Super Capitalist one was the fact that the screening was in North Hollywood, which never happened. That was, that was part of it, yeah. yeah. And it, there was an interesting thing, because, uh, okay, here's a, one of the dumbest uh, pieces of trivia I'm, I'm going to put out on the show. Um, there's a scene that takes place in a diner uh-huh. uh, in North Hollywood. Oh, um, the diner and and behind it in the film you see the you see the diner and behind it you see some construction. The construction is the theater in which I saw Super Capitalist. Oh wow! So what diner is it then? It's uh, I don't remember the name of it, but it's right next to the theater. I think I know which one you're talking about. I can't remember. Yeah, the name it's, it's, it's is got, it Phil's. It's Phil's. Oh, yes, okay. and it's terrible. That place that's never open. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? Wait, that's, hold a, on. that's a win for you. It's terrible. Hold on. I love diner food. Is it terrible? Because, okay, I, I've said this on the show before, 75, 80% of the time, if you, Tyler Smith, say that you don't like a restaurant, it's a pretty much a guarantor that I'm going to like it. I'm the same way with you about everything. <laughs> so it all works out. So is it, but is it terrible in a way that it's just because of your personal taste, or it's just terrible? It's terrible in a way that, like, frankly, if I say diner, you probably think of, well, you probably think of that, uh, eh, Overrated Barry Levinson film, uh-huh. but like, but you uh, you're all, you also probably think of a certain type of food, and uh, yeah, and Phil's Diner has that food, but then prepares it in a way that is, I'll just say it, pretentious. Oh, so it's a place I would like. Maybe no, I don't I know. Like like chicken. How do you ruin chicken? Here's how you ruin it. You slather it in this vomity looking shit, uh, so that it like it's just like just floating in this uh, and it's just it's a piece of chicken yeah this sounds great to me oh it's, it's horrendous <laughs> how do you ruin fries well here's how you ruin them you you coat them in some kind of weird mixture of something that would never go on fries and how about this maybe it's this tell me that's what how the fries are prepared if it i say it on the menu no when it says fries I have an expectation that, like, okay, yeah, maybe I they'll be seasoned. Maybe they'll be seasoned. Uh, but anyway, you know what? That place is never open. All right. Um, but Phil's is a, by the way, uh, North Hollywood. I, I wish I knew more North Hollywood trivia, but it's like a, a classic. That is yeah. this uh, diner in a, in a railway car mm-hmm. that was there in in North Hollywood for decades and had been um, closed due to, uh, I think, when they built the when they expanded Chandler Avenue. I yes. think whenever is when they closed it. And the diner car was still sitting there. I remember when I first moved here, it was still sitting there forever. Mm-hmm. And then they moved the diner car a block or two south, and someone bought it and opened it and kept the name Phil's Diner. Yeah, and it's it's everything about it is like, oh, man, I really wish I liked this food because I like the atmosphere. Oh, and I did see a guy, uh, the one time I ate there, there was a, a, a drunken guy who started throwing his uh, mugs and plates around, uh, and the police had to be called. So okay, uh, everything you're telling me about this place makes me want to go. <laughs> I know, you know what? I'm kind of selling myself on it now. <laughs> I will say this: I've never had decent food at a diner car. They always seem very cool, but I've never had okay food there. I don't know if I've ever eaten at. A- oh, they're in like every city. Yeah, I, I know that. But uh, anyway, um, like in Minnesota, like oh, to the end of you know Prairie Home Companion. We can't go. It uh, is not open anymore. Oh, oh, the, forever. The first. Uh, that's why it's never open. The first <laughs> article uh, on when I googled it. 
is um, says Phil Steiner closes after less less than eight months. And then oh, in wow. the and then the subhead, good riddance, right? <laughs> I assume so. Or vows revenge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, as far as why I couldn't do this on Thursday, it's because I was seeing Lawrence of Arabia in the movie theater, um, which was. Uh, it's its 50th anniversary. It was back in movie theaters uh, across the country, I guess. And it was in like a dozen in Los Angeles County alone mm-hmm. uh, for one day. There was a matinee and an evening showing, 1 p.m. and 7 p.m. That's it, just the one day. Uh, and I was very excited about it because um, it's one of my, you know, what I think one of the 10 best movies of all time, um, possibly even one of my 10 personal favorite movies of all time. Um, and uh, there were multiple people... Uh, uh, by which I mean two. Two different people that I knew who are film fans that I asked, like, hey, did you hear about this? Are you planning on going? And they said, uh, n- no, I'm not planning on going because it's a digital projection. I think it was 4K, but uh, Scott said he heard differently. In any case, it's digital projection, projection and it's not projected from film, uh, either 35 millimeter nor 70 millimeter, which, Tyler, you and I saw it about 10 years ago for the 40th anniversary at the Music Box in Chicago in 70 millimeter. Mm-hmm. So it I've got gl- that. And it was glorious. I've got that under my belt. Yeah. Um, uh, except, you remember there was one projection problem? I don't know if you remember. I don't remember that. Um, I guess the first time, and I could be wrong about how 70 millimeter is projected, but it's a scope movie, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, which means there has to be a thing on the projector, right? Right, yeah, anamorphic uh, lens. Yes, I guess the first time they switched, because I guess they had two projectors because it's an old-school movie theater, and they're actually switching reel-to-reel. The first time they switched reels, I guess the second projector didn't have the lens on, hmm. and suddenly it was like this huge picture that was like all blurry and like <laughs> bigger than the screen, hmm. and they had to stop the movie. And I, I did not. I do not remember that at all. Weird. Oh, I, I, I very much remember that. And here, because I was seeing it in an AMC theater, the problem uh, this time was that they accidentally left the house lights on for the first ten minutes of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, that's beside the point. What I want to talk about is this idea of digital projection versus film. Uh, that's it's not a deal breaker for me. I understand obviously that even 4K is not um, as high resolution as 35 millimeter, let alone 70 millimeter. Um, and I understand that. And given the choice, I, I guess given the choice, I would see it in 70. But here's the thing. Even with the master, I saw the di- digital projection of that because the time worked out best for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't, it's not a deal breaker for me. Uh, and I don't judge anyone who is, but I wanted to get to, I guess, pull the uh, panel here. Is it a deal breaker for either of you guys? Uh, it depends on the type of thing. For the master, I did go out of my way to see it in seventy millimeter both times that I saw it because it's one of those once in a lifetime things. Mm-hmm. What's the next movie that's ever going to be released in seventy millimeter? Um, and for older movies, it is kind of a deal breaker. More and more, they're switching over to digital projection, and I probably won't go if it, I see a digital projection showtime. Um, so I go to the New Bev a lot. I go to Cine Family a lot because they generally show thirty five millimeter, mm-hmm. and especially for older films that are shot, edited you know entirely done on film to switch it over digital ruins the integrity of the image with newer movies however they're mostly edited digitally so at some point there's a digital intermediate um and so the digital version is actually kind of a truer version of what the filmmaker put together uh i always think i don't care (laughs) um and the reason i put it like that is because you know i just i i feel like I feel like my eyes are not, or I used to feel like my eyes were not trained enough to be able to tell much of a difference. And then I saw 
you know, and then you and I saw Lawrence of Arabia, and mm-hmm. I saw a few other things on film. Um, I saw Night of the Hunter on film in it, on the big screen. Jaws, a film that I had seen, as I've said before, more than any other film. I, and I've seen it VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, you know, and and blue, uh, DVD and certainly Blu-ray are considered like you know nice and crisp and beautiful. And then I saw it on film. On and it being on the big screen probably made a difference as well. Um, but like it, it, there is there is a uh, there is a real for lack of a better term, like a real depth and a real uh, texture to film that mm-hmm. does get, that I think can get lost with digital projection. Um, and so, and I saw Citizen Kane uh, on film as well, the Arclight, and uh, I thought it was beautiful. You know, it, every time I think I don't care, uh-huh. I see something on film that I previously have only seen digitally projected. Because I saw, I saw um, back in school, uh, we watched Citizen Kane in history of film class, and we didn't see a film projection of it. We saw a digital projection of it, and uh, I mean, not was, even like a. It wasn't even like a two K or whatever. I'm it was sure, like yeah. A DVD. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, at the um, it might have been laser disc. The the, oh, yeah, the school had a lot of laser discs. Um, and by the way, uh, um, before the Sunset Five closed, I saw the Makioka sisters there projected from the Criterion Blu-ray. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? It looked fine to me. Yeah. Because I, I don't have that. Yeah. And that's my concern is like, you know, I know I recognize it makes me a bad filmmaker, but uh, not filmmaker, <laughs> but uh, film viewer. But like, um, so, but my natural instinct is like, well, you know, uh, maybe yeah, I'm sure it's negligible to me, but I always think that right up until I see, because I did, I saw the master 70 millimeter. Mm-hmm. I, I would have I, I would have seen it either way. I just happened to go to a seventy millimeter, and it's just like, and then it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I, all right, I yeah, I see it. Okay, I got it. I see the difference. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and yeah, I, I don't think it's a deal breaker for me, but I, exactly, I do notice the difference. I I also notice the difference, and obviously, um, it's it's preferable. But I think, um, I just don't have. Uh, I, I, I've talked about it before, and we actually got a complaint, I think, on the, our iTunes our iTunes review that I uh, spent too long talking about the fact that I was in therapy and the way that it <laughs> changed things. But oh, wow. being less uptight, essentially, uh, is a big uh, part of it, and I'm, I'm, I'm more willing to accept the fact that uh, I'm not going to let someone talking during a movie ruin it for me anymore. <laughs> uh, or, Good for or, you. Yeah, I've kind of blocked that as well. Uh, phones, on the other hand, though, I am and, and Yeah, phones are, are worse, but I still, like, I'm more at ease with things. And maybe that's part of it. Like, I, I guess... And also, I think... And I know you guys did, too, because we're all the same age. I grew up watching movies on VHS. That's how I discovered most of the classics. You know, cropped and in VHS quality. So I'm kind of willing to like i don't think it ha- doesn't have to be this perfect unvarnished gem for me to uh, uh, appreciate a thing obviously it's preferable as it is if it is but i am willing to go to something that's projected in any way or or uh, do you remember when you and i were living together uh-huh. uh it was i think our first year living together and citizen kane had just come out on dvd that really nice uh that really nice version i Uh I think it was the only version on dvd and uh i I think we went to coconuts uh Uh on division no not division it's diversity diversity thank you it's not there it's It's not there uh, anymore yeah i was just in the neighborhood it's a vitamin shop of course it is (laughs) and so um but i bought it there and then we took it we took it back and we were excited because just like hey dvd things look better on you know like we were young Uh Uh, things look better on dvd and then we threw it in and both you and i were like 
holy shit. <laughs> like, it just, it made all the difference. Because at the time, the only way I had ever seen Citizen Kane was on as cleaned up a, a VHS as possible, but yeah. still just a VHS. And it, like, it, it made all the difference. It was crazy. Yeah. Uh, but then, of course, it did not compare to seeing it in, on film. Which I still haven't done. Um, so, yeah, okay. I'm glad we got that out of the way. That was yeah. what I wanted to talk about. We're at 16 minutes. We're moving along. Let's get this shit done. All right. But there's some stuff I want to talk about before we get into the topic. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, stuff we need to talk about. Um, I need to tell you guys about tweakedaudio.com. Um, they make these they make these professional quality earbuds. And uh, I ain't kidding when I say that. They sound great. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go to tweakedaudio.com, you buy these earbuds, uh, you won't believe your ears. You'll never go back to whatever earbuds you were using before again. Uh, sweetening the deal is that they're really affordable. Right? Yeah, I'd say so. They're really affordable. Like 30 bucks for a pair of, of earbuds. Of, of quality earbuds, yeah. yes. Here's what you guys get, because you know us. All right. You go to com. No, don't hit enter yet. com slash pretension. Right. You get a third off of that, and free shipping. It's 20 bucks for professional level, uh, professional quality earbuds in a variety of styles and colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and no shipping. Now, here's the thing. Uh, you'd be here's, stupid. Uh, you'd be stupid. Like, like not going to our website, you'd have to be an idiot not to buy these earbuds. Right. I'm angry about it. And here's... Uh, oh. uh, calm down, David. I'll, t- okay. I'll take over from yeah, here. I, I got I'm gonna, it. I'm going to do All a right. lap. Yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah. Uh, now, David mentioned a variety of uh, styles and colors. Here's why he mentioned it. You can choose. <laughs> you know, it's not merely, here's a lot of different things, and... Who knows what you're going to get? It's not that. That's going to send you what's on the top of the pile. Right, right yeah. You decide. You get to curate. Yeah, you decide. You see those green ones. Hey, those look pretty nice. I want those. That's what you get. Yeah. The ones that look like wood? You get those. Those are cool. I don't know why you'd want them. I think they're cool. I mean, you know, they kind of have a rustic quality to, you yeah, know, you I just like. feel like this is what the pioneers listen to. Yeah, this is how but, they listen to their yeah. iPods. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, they're clockwork iPods. <laughs> but uh, this, is, this is how the Donner Party listened to their iPods before they ate each other. Uh, but uh, anyway, so yeah. Uh, and, you know, and here's the thing if you don't even want to do any typing, chances are you're already at battleshipretention.com reading one of a thousand articles written by David. Uh, head on over to the right, your right, not screen right, your right of the page. Scroll down just a little bit. You'll see a, 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 a skyscraper Wait, ad. I'm sorry. Yes. Oh, yeah, a skyscraper ad for tweakedaudio.com. Yeah. Finish that, and then I'm going to say what I said. Yeah, okay. Uh, you click on it. That'll take you right where you need to go. You don't need to type shit. Yeah. All right? That's true. You just get there, and you're there. I mean, you have it's to type done. battleshippretension.com. I'm oh, assuming really, you're there already. That's just your homepage. Right. You're already exactly. there. <laughs> exactly. And, I mean, really, you've probably been to battleshippretension.com a billion times. You hit you hit B uh, or yeah. B-A. Yeah. Do you know I actually, as a co-host of Battleship Pretension, have to hit B-A-T before it comes up? You know why? Why? Because I bank with Bank of America. Oh, yeah. That's why. I just never visit my banking site. That's why I never. <laughs> See, I just have a, I just have a, uh, a bookmark. In my Firefox. Oh, I, I, have, I have that too. Um, so. Not fi- I, I don't really use Firefox. So that's, not, is, that's beside the point. So what were you going to laugh at with my... Uh, no, is screen right and screen <laughs> left really a thing? 
As if I'm, the screen has a perspective. Yeah, no, I've never heard that before. No, that's creepily. a joke that I'm saying. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm stupid about technology. That's why I go see you know uh, 4K projections. No, it's my like it's my it's it's a jo- it's my actor's mentality of like there's stage yeah. right and stage left. No, you know, I like and, it. An audience right, and I like the idea that we're inside. We're talking to you from inside the screen. So <laughs> left to us is right to you. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. I love it. I love it. All right. Um, all right, uh, before we get to the topic, uh, I want to thank some people who sent us some stuff, which, uh, you know, I, we love getting stuff. It's pretty great. Um, we thanked Andrew uh, last week, I think, or two weeks ago. I don't recall. Um, for the stuff that he sent us. Um, we can be a little bit more specific this time around. Um, and if you want to send us anything, if you go to BattleshipRetention.com, which is your homepage, mm-hmm. as we've established, you hit About... What do you hit? Contact? Uh, if you if you hover over about, uh, a little thing that says contact us will pop go. up. You click on that, and that'll, yeah. that'll give you the P.O. box. So about contact us, that's how you you find our, our the address, the P.O. box. Um, I want to thank a few people who sent us stuff. Uh, uh, Peter, Peter H. I don't know if we should say last names. Yeah. So Peter H. Uh, sent us some lovely postcards from from the American Southwest. Uh, mine's from Utah. I don't know. Oh, you don't have your... Uh, mine's from the Grand Canyon. Okay. Mine is uh, uh, Delicate Arch in Arches National Park right. in Utah. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, and then we got two things, two different things, or, or it's the same thing, two different people in two different countries. One person, Dan E. from Australia, Brisbane. Do they say Brisbane? Do they say I it like know. I would want to say it? I think it's Brisbane. I've Brisbane. heard it before. It's, Brisbane. It's Brisbane, yeah. uh, Brisbane, Australia. Uh, QLD. Queensland. Brisbane, Queensland, <laughs> Australia. Uh, uh, Queensland, uh, that's what I say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sent us some Tim Tam. That's right. Yes, he did. He sent us some Tim Tam. And I think... Uh, oh, I took him out of the boxes. I think he's the one who actually sent us two different flavors. I believe so, yes. Here's what we had. We had two, we had two people send us Tim Tam. One, per- one person sent us a shitload of Tim Tam. <laughs> the other person sent us two different flavors. Yeah. Both great choices, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. You can go either way with that, and I am super happy <laughs> about that. So thanks to Dan. And then the other person, Matthew L. Mm-hmm. from New Zealand. Yes. He's who, the one who sent us a shitload of Tim Tam. Yeah. Uh, and, and I believe he is, I believe I met him while I was in New Zealand. So, Matthew, it was, that was very nice of you. Uh, yes, he, he says he met you, and actually he wanted to, qu- to clarify here. Okay. That he didn't send Tim Tam just because we asked. He was already planning to anyway after he met you and right. heard you talk about how much you liked it. Um, and, and, and then he forgot until we mentioned it. All right. Um, and he also talks about um, the way to eat Tim Tam. I don't know if you know about this. He, uh, he, was, very, he was very animated about how to eat Tim Tam when I met him. Yes. You use it as a straw. And what kind of beverage would you like a coffee? He or, said uh, coffee. Yeah. He okay. said basically because it's kind of like a like a sandwich wafer type thing, mm-hmm. but with a chocolate filling, you bite off one end, you bite off the other, you dip it into the coffee and you suck it through so you get like chocolatey coffee. But you don't just and bite off one end, you bite off one corner yes. and then the diagonal corner. Yes. Yeah. So uh, you go like uh, like clue secret passage with it. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to do it. Yeah. So thank you to Peter, to Dan, and to Matthew uh, for the awesome stuff that we got. Uh, I love it. Yeah, I love getting stuff. And the thing is, this this is actually my this is uh, one of my uh, no or very low carb months. So I can't have Tim Tim for the next few weeks, but it'll make for a nice reward. Yeah, that's what happened when we had. Um, um, now <laughs> I've forgotten how to say his name, Matthias. Yeah. On and he brought us some Kinder Bueno, 
and I was on a diet that month, and I, I just like set it on the, I set it on the on the the bar cart mm-hmm. uh, right from my kitchen there. You can picture it. You've been to my yeah, house, yeah. Uh, as, as have you, Scott. Um, and spent because it was early in the month when he gave it to us, and spent three weeks just looking at it every time I went to the kitchen. I was like, <laughs> Oh, February when you come here, yeah. that one day I was not going to know what hit it. <laughs> just, it's <laughs> like, Oh, Tim Tam, look at you, smug, <laughs> just sitting there. <laughs> Just content as can be, but just you wait. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's everything out of the way. Mm-hmm. Let's, uh, I want to get to the topic. And at first I want to describe, I want to give the people an idea of what the topic's going to be. Okay. Because I don't know if you've looked down at your iPod, um, whether you have the clockwork iPod or the, or the, <laughs> or the current one or the downer party one. Um, if you look down at your iPod, you'll see the episode number, which is 290. Okay. And that Hang should, on. Be, a, that should be a big clue. Yes. That last number should be a big clue oh, David, if you're a long-time it's, listener. It's, uh, oh, it it's sounds on the tip from, of your tongue, right? It's on the tip of my tongue. Two, No, that's nine, not the, it's only the zero is the one you need to pay attention zero. to. Zero. Because any, here's the thing, any Battleship Retention episode, that uh, the, the number of which now that zero ends is, in a zero. Yeah, that zero is not preceded by another zero or a five. <laughs> so it'd be, it's... Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so that's that's significant as well. Yes. So uh, any Battleship Retention episode that ends with a zero, in which the zero is not preceded either by another zero or a five, right. is a profile episode. Okay. What that means is we're going to profile someone. All right. And now um, I move awkwardly from all this goofiness to the sort of somber task at hand, yes. which is that uh, the person that we're profiling um, uh, is r- recently deceased. Uh, and that's that's Tony Scott, um, and I, uh, you know, we uh, Tony Scott's passing happened at a time when we were like sort of having, uh, uh, I think, on a little break. Like we had done, we had banked some episodes, and we didn't really that. actually talk about it at all. Yeah, not on, really on the podcast. And um, I was kind of glad that we didn't talk about it right away because it then gave me the idea of doing an episode about him. Mm-hmm. And knowing that two ninety was right around the corner uh, was the perfect. The perfect uh, excuse. Yes. And then you wanted to have Scott on because, specifically because he likes one of, if not the worst <laughs> Tony Scott movie. If not one of the worst movies ever. But it's, <laughs> yeah, and it's it's not only that. It's not it's not so that we can just like uh, raz, uh, you know, raz our friend Scott here. That's but mostly why you have me around. So I just figured. <laughs> kind of, yeah. But it is one of those things that like, you know, when... I felt like it would be kind of a, a nice tribute to Tony Scott, who did recently pass away, to have somebody that is a legitimate fan because he is a kind of a divisive, polarizing figure in the world of film. Yeah, and, and so I will, I will get into that myself. He is divisive even within my own tastes. Yeah, no, and and me as well. And so to have, so I wanted to have somebody who is not merely a fan, but is kind of a champion of him, uh, even in the face of uh, totally reasonable ridicule. And so, um, so I wanted I wanted Scott here because I don't know it's it, it seemed like an opportunity that I did not want to miss to like really in a serious way talk about even even the films that are that are you know much maligned by this filmmaker in a serious uh, thoughtful way. Yeah, and I'm hoping uh, Scott, your presence here will also help us right off the bat because I'm hoping you've seen The Hunger. Yeah, but actually, I want to go back a little bit. Okay. Further than that. Because well, then let's, also, get in, let's get into it, shall we? Yeah, absolutely. You have to let me say that. <laughs> now that you've said that, we can get into it. Uh, both of his short films are actually online, uh, available via YouTube. Uh, the first one, One of the Missing, he made in 1969, long before he became 
a filmmaker like of any note, much less a major commercial figure. Um, and it's uh, weirdly enough, like most independent films these days, most small short films especially, are about just like couples sitting around an apartment bullshitting about whatever. This is a Civil War period piece <laughs> made for you know a couple hundred dollars. Uh, it mostly plays out American Civil War, right? Because he's British, right? Yeah. So right away, he's right there with America. Um, and it actually plays out for the most part like Steven Soderbergh's Che. It's very procedural, very much just like day in the life of these guys um, until the main character gets trapped in an explosion. There's even an explosion in his short films presaging his most famous uh, attribute. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, until this guy gets trapped in an explosion, gets trapped under some rubble in a position in which his rifle is pointed straight at his face. So it's this great tense setup that he then kind of gets into more expressive, elaborate camera work. And I'd really recommend people check it out. It's only 25 minutes. It is on YouTube. Or you can buy the Blu-ray that uh, BFI released that also has his longer, almost feature-length film, Loving Memory, which is a very creepy, unnerving movie. It's about a kid who goes on a bike ride one day and gets run over by this elderly couple. Um, I read online that the brother and sister, but it plays like husband and wife, so who knows. Um... And so, rather than, like, report it or wait around for the police to come by, they drag the body down the car and, like, okay, this is starting to be, like, a film noir kind of thing. But then they get back home, and the old woman props him up in this room and starts talking to him about the fact that her son's died. And then she starts dressing him up in her son's clothing. And things progress from there in a very weird, creepy way. And I'd really recommend people check that out. And so, what are, what are, the, what are those films called again? The first uh, one is... One of the Missing and Loving Memory. Okay. Okay, I'll, before we get into The Hunger, then, I want to mention something that you said about one of the missing, um, was he, uh, embracing America right from the yeah. get-go. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, does he have, I don't know if he has any films that are set. Loving it, Memory is set in Britain. Okay. Um, and but beyond that. Hunger, but it seems like his films are not only set in America, but are American in ways that probably lead to uh, a lot of the m- malignment uh, uh, you know, ways that are mockable well, or they're, dismissible. Uh, yeah, I think they're American in their sensibility and in their content. I think he just uh, really embraces, for good or ill, embraces American filmmaking. And I find that... Which very, is not, more, I mean, yeah. not a homogenist, uh, homogenous right. um, or homogenist. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Your anyway. prejudice against <laughs> yeah. homogens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, American film, American cinema isn't a homogenous thing. Top right. Gun is as American as Winter's Bone, but right. they're incredibly different. Perhaps, perhaps I should specify uh, mainstream Hollywood yeah. American yeah. filmmaking. Okay, so The Hunger. Yeah, uh, The Hunger is set in New York City, largely filmed, however, in London. So it sometimes looks like New York, and sometimes you don't really know where you are. Um, it is a vampire movie, extremely gothic, like what we come to associate, I think, especially by the late 80s, early 90s. But this is kind of, this is 1983, so it's well before, I think, the mainstream goth movement. I don't know that much about it, so feel free to correct me. Um, but in it, uh, David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve are these vampires, uh, and it turns out that Catherine Deneuve is like, I don't know, the, the main vampire. She's more vampire than David Bowie anyway. And he starts to discover that his immortality is not quite as long-lasting as he thought. He starts to age at a very rapid rate. Uh, and this is this huge, weird section in which Tony Scott employs this really elliptical editing. And he does this throughout most of the movie. But 
it starts to just like cut away from him and then cut back and he'll be like appear five years older than he would but he can't actually die and so it gets into this weird creepy angle where he's like I mean, it's kind of cheesy. He's trapped in this really awful makeup, but it kind of gets to the underbelly of the story, which is he's trapped in this body that he can't totally escape from. And in the middle of it, like, it's got some pretty trashy elements. It has a really drawn-out, really poorly executed sex scene between uh, Catherine Deneuve and her new target, Susan Sarandon, Uh which is uh, instigated when... Susan Sarandon spills some wine on her shirt and is like, oh, I must take this shirt off. <laughs> so in addition to just being kind of... And Catherine Deneuve is like, I never thought this would happen to me. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, so in addition to kind of having some trashy elements already, the just by having the pornographic angle, it becomes even more pornographic because it's just so poorly set up and executed. And if, you know, character motivation is your thing, there's no reason for us to believe that Susan Sarandon would suddenly hop into bed with this woman. She has like this longstanding partner waiting at home who's a man. And there's really nothing to indicate that she would have these, you know, homo, uh, homosexual tendencies. But uh, I can roll with that. I can't roll with the dramatic setup as much. Well, let me um, stop again. A couple of things you mentioned, the uh, weird editing and uh, the trashiness yeah, uh, are both things that will continue to mark his career. I suppose so, yeah. Um, I mean, his, um, his desire to push... Uh, the way that a film is edited and presented um, in, you know, less, I guess, uh, increasingly less pedestrian and less, um, uh, what's the word, digestible ways uh, throughout his his career. You know, he didn't... Sure. um, He didn't become more sort of stayed in his older age, which I think you can make an argument that his brother kind of has. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, yes, I agree. Uh, he, you know, uh, I mean, obviously I don't want to get ahead of the, uh, ahead of things, but I, I rewatched uh, most of Man on Fire recently, and it's it's crazy looking, the things yeah. that happen in Man <laughs> on Fire. Uh, but we'll get to Man on Fire uh, later. And, and of course, the, the trashiness. I mean, that, again, is... Um, ties into the uh, uh, American mainstream thing you're talking about. And, and, then, and he... He came along, you know, uh, people talk about uh, Jaws as changing things in terms of the Jaws and Star Wars is the idea of the summer blockbuster. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and he managed to come in the wake of that. I mean, obviously he was working as early as 1969, but um, really in, in the wake of that, um, really uh, uh, is a perfect, I guess, time for him to blossom, uh, making films like the one we're going to talk about next, Top Gun, um, that are... Uh, it, you know, really again embrace the uh, these humongous budgets, these spectacles, and also the uh, changing in 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 uh, the Hollywood studio uh, American film like uh, culture of the B movies into A movies. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. That 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 movies that in the in the fifties and sixties. Uh, even 40s would have been the lower budget B movies. These genre movies are now where almost all of the money goes, and now are the most expensive, uh, you know, most lavish productions. Uh, there, you know, it's not. It's no longer, um, you know, uh, giant, you know, or these other sort of like mm-hmm. prestigious, prestige <laughs> things that the money gets sunk into. They get sunk into things like, you know, Battleship or or John Carter or other things with Taylor Kitsch in them. <laughs> and and Tony Scott seemed to come along and and uh, just 
it really worked out for him for his sensibility that this that he can't that he his career really began at the resurgence or not or the the what's the the emergence is the one yeah. more of this uh, style well so I, oh trend well yeah i was just gonna say that the hunger like i think especially as you see his movies over the last 10 years the hunger is much closer to i feel like his true artistic intent than like a Top Gun, which was very studio managed, and he got fired from three times during the production of <laughs> because even he was trying to make it just even slightly experimental, and it's even stuff they made in the final film. But at the time, they're like, "What? What is this guy doing?" Um, and one more thing I want to mention with the Hunger because it's going to play back in his filmography is there's a sequence in which Susan Sarandon has been bitten already by Catherine Deneuve, and she tries to escape, and as she's walking down the streets of New York, she almost gets hit by this truck, and the way Tony Scott edits it suggests that uh, Catherine Deneuve saves Susan Sarandon from being hit by this truck like through some weird metaphysical connection. Uh-huh. And this is something, believe it or not, listeners, that Tony Scott will come back to again and again is the way that people are connected in a larger sense than just immediate physical contact. So we'll get back to that later. Okay. Uh, so I wanted to mention something before we get too deep into the, uh, into the topic um, because I don't know where else to say it. Okay. Um, it seems like something that should be said at the beginning or at the end. Uh, and you already mentioned Tony Scott's brother, who's Ridley Scott. And it's interesting because uh, uh, Scott Nye, <laughs> our guest, and I oh, were... Boy. Yeah, it's going to be go. frustrating. Um, we were talking about um, Tony Scott and Ridley Scott uh, about a week ago uh, with uh, some other people. And... Ridley Scott is is a filmmaker that I think has has lost uh, a step or two or three or four or five or six um, <laughs> in the last thirty years. Uh, he's still interesting. Um, I think if the script for Prometheus were was better, I think it could have been a really fascinating film. I don't know that he is interesting. I don't know that. Um, I think I, I, think I, I don't know some... that the script is the only problem with Prometheus. I think he well, was I still, making choices still... that were uh, 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 un- uninspired. As, as, as well, we don't. I don't. I don't want to go too far into into Ridley Scott, but I think there's still every once in a while, like with with a Black Hawk Down or something like that, you'll see just a little flare of like, oh, hey, whoa, hey, what's going on here? Uh-huh. Who's this guy that just showed up? Um, but by and large, I'd say you get stuff like the new uh, Robin Hood, um, which is just completely forgettable, and then you'll get stuff like you know a movie you hate, Matchstick Men, but I, I think is pretty good but at the same time like there's nothing about it that screams ridley scott and it's interesting because well what would scream like i don't even know what his mark is besides like epic period right. pieces with swords and stuff you know it's and like- so at the risk of uh, angering listeners because anytime we talk about auteurs versus uh, you know the journeyman or something like that um people get upset um Ridley Scott, I think because he's been nominated for a couple of Oscars and his movies have a bit more prestige, and I think because early on he got, you know, he had the one-two punch of Alien and Blade Runner, I think right. I think and he... And the, uh, I mean, it's going to sound like a joke, but the uh, the Apple commercial. Yeah, yeah that's, no, that's notable. That's absolutely yeah. true. Um, I think, yeah, so that's, that's a one-two-and-a-half punch. <laughs> um, and so I think early on he immediately got a lot more attention and credibility artistically than Tony Scott did. Tony Scott's, you know, mainstream career started with Top Gun and Days of Thunder. And so I think Tony Scott was always viewed as the the inferior of the Scott brothers. And I'd say He was the he was the dimension to Ridley Scott's Miramax. <laughs> Absolutely, sure. And so uh but I do think that 
first off, I think Tony Scott is absolutely an auteur, whereas Ridley Scott is not. Um, it, you know, you can debate who is the better director, but at that point, like, what does better even mean? Like, Tony Scott clearly has something he he has a visual style, whether you like it or not. He has a visual style. He has a goal of how he wants to make a movie, what he wants to try to explore, at least visually and kinetically with his films. Ridley Scott, not so much. Ridley Scott occasionally hits it out of the park, and that's great. But Tony Scott is consistent, and he is somebody that deserves to be taken seriously. And it, it's one of those things, it's unfortunate that he, is, that he has a more famous filmmaker brother because now i think not even now but i think people and including myself for a long time but it was probably 10 15 years ago um i think a lot of people view him as somehow less legitimate because he's not this thing um he's the hollywood you know whatever um you know and maybe a little hacky and it's like i i don't agree with that at all i think he is somebody that deserves to be again whether you like him or not he's somebody with a point of view with goals and who I'd say mostly succeeds in those goals, uh, who deserves to be taken seriously and not merely dismissed because his brother's w- his brother was nominated for a few Oscars. So I just wanted to put that out there and move on. Yeah, I mean, for, okay. sorry, you just thought you wouldn't move on. But uh, for uh, people who know about Manny Farber's White Elephant versus Termite Art, art, art Theory. basically You're mumbling like you're sorry, back yeah. here. Manny Farber's... Manny Farber's White, white Elephant versus Termite Art Theory, uh, in which... He railed against these bloated Hollywood productions that take on a great air of importance because of the subject matter they tackle, uh, but don't actually have a point of view or or that well-directed or really say anything, whereas termite artists will inject a point of view and artistic temperament into, you know, kind of B-genre pictures, and the Tony Scott Ridley Scott divide is a very clear example of that. But, I mean, uh, again, um, Alien is a pretty straightforward and lean genre movie yeah mm-hmm. and he started i mean blade runner definitely has some uh, a lot of expanse to it but it's still well yeah blade runner is an exceptional movie i don't want to take anything away from that but he hasn't done anything since then that's even close to those two movies okay i like black hawk down a lot but uh yeah you're, yeah you're right but okay. it could be argued that black hawk down is and it, i don't there's the last thing we'll say about Ridley Scott unless it comes up organically. But Black Hawk Down, I think, is successful precisely because it approaches it in a Tony Scott kind of way, mm-hmm. in, a, in a kinetic action movie type of way, as opposed to a Saving Private Ryan. Like, it, it's imp- like this, this situation is life or death for the soldiers involved, but the filmmaker is approaching it like, a, like an action movie. Um, and I think that makes it... I don't know. I think that separates it. I think it, it's it's a specific lack of, of bombast. Okay, uh, let's move on into Top Gun then. Um, and I want to. Uh, I'm, I'm treating you, Scott, uh, as uh, as if you are the um, the Tony Scott expert here. Uh, <laughs> well, somebody's got to be. But I want to. I guess I, I want to talk about. We've talked about his editing style. Uh, I want to talk about his visual style and whether or not it is. Uh, it, it, I think Top Gun looks, in some ways, very what we think of as '80s. Yeah. Um, but I also wonder if Tony Scott wasn't one of the guys who created that that look. That you also see. Um, uh, I never know how to say his name. Adrian Lyne. Adrian Lynn. I think it's Lynn. Lynn. Uh, his 1980s films also have this look. This uh, lots of 
lots of telephoto lenses, lots of um, sort of steam or smoke in the right. in, in the foreground. <laughs> you know that that sort of that 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 sort of that sort of look. Uh, do you think that Tony Scott was writing a wave that already existed, or was he helping to create this look that we think of? In many ways, he was helping to create it. One of the things he was fired off. Of Top Gun 4. He says they only last the firing period is only lasts like 24 hours, but in the opening sequence there's these slow motion shots set against the sunset of these silhouetted guys, you know, preparing the planes and all that, which these days is like in every military ad. Uh-huh. But this sequence got him fired the first time um, uh, because why? it was just considered so radical and dynamic and you know, you can see their faces and it was in slow motion and they thought he was like making an artsy picture out of their airplane movie. <laughs> so <laughs> so hot. Yeah, it's weird how quickly quickly things change, but but yeah. that does speak to, yeah, his sort of forging new ground. Now, obviously, I don't want to, you know, there's a temptation to um, speak nicely about someone because they have, because that person has just died. But I, 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 I want to, again, make it clear that I am not, uh, I am, like I said, very on the fence about a lot of Tony Scott. So, um, so yes, he was clearly forging uh, a new ground there. Uh, breaking new ground you don't forge ground um breaking new ground uh but was it is it ground that i'm glad he broke uh and that's that's a i i don't know what do you guys think of that i think it i think it works depending on what movie he's making i think for enemy of the state it works great okay i think for man on fire it works great do you like Um, top gun well no but that's (laughs) but that's for for any number of reasons. I mean, one of the, I, I don't care for the story. I think it, you know, the tone, which could, you know, it could be, that's, he's the director. So ultimately he's responsible for it. But of course there is a lot of studio involvement and yeah. their, their tone is just a very hokey, you know, melodramatic. And I'm not opposed to melodrama, but the way that, you know, it does play but like a commercial. It's, um, it's, um, it's Jay Bruckheimer, Don Simpson, right? It yeah. sure is. And, uh, one thing that, as much as you know, uh, as many bad movies as they make, they do know how to cast a movie, mm-hmm. and I think the cast is great here. You've got uh, Scott Glenn and Val Kilmer, um, but you also got as hokey as it is, the relationship, the intangible relationship between Tom Cruise and Anthony Edwards is mm-hmm. one of the things in the movie that I really like. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, carries it's, the movie in a lot of very weak spots. I don't really like Top Gun much either. <laughs> There's very little going on in that movie. It's a movie about guys competing for a trophy that doesn't even exist in the real Top Gun program. You know, it's interesting. Um, A lot of my friends, don't get me wrong, of course, when I was a kid, I loved the soundtrack. How could you not? But um, uh, I had a lot of friends who really enjoyed Top Gun. And even as a kid, I'm like, I don't. I I found the film not necessarily boring, but I was like, there's, this is going to sound strange. There's no bad guy. They're not fighting anybody. (laughs) Well, yeah. They're fighting themselves. Yeah, and, and the closest thing to a bad guy is a guy who just flies better than Maverick <laughs> and is yeah. kind of stuck up about it. Yeah. And so I so for me it just seemed like a like a I don't think I used this term when I was a kid, but it was a little low kind of low stakes. Yeah. And so I didn't really care that much. But I, but I yes, thought I is, thought Top Gun was awesome when I was a kid. Oh man, I could not get behind it. Because it's the part where he flies upside down over the guy and gives him the finger. I was like, This guy <laughs> is so cool. I wanna be that cool someday. 
Uh, I like the Aviator Shades. Uh, I, I liked it when I was a kid. I, I Dave, you, and I, you and I should go, so, go play some volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't, actually don't like volleyball. This is going to make me sound like a big wuss, but uh, it hurts. Playing volleyball <laughs> hurts your wrists. I don't know how people do it. It I is, is, is unpleasant. And I guess I, you know, I do things that are unpleasant because I like the result. Mm-hmm. You know, And I guess maybe because I don't like volleyball, I am not willing to put up with the fact that hitting a volleyball hurts. Now... I have a uh, kind of a frustrating relationship with the, with volleyball because I, I sprained my ankle one time because I landed wrong as I was jumping up to, to hit a volleyball in gym class. So that's one thing. That's a negative thing. Mm-hmm. However, there was this other time when I hit a volleyball. In, we, we were indoors. We were uh-huh. in, the, in the, the high school gym. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I hit the volleyball and I made a basket. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh. you know... Yeah. That's pretty good. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you broke a window, which also would have been awesome. Yeah. But that's even better. Yeah. yeah. So. Okay. Um, I didn't get any points for that, by the way, which I kind of think is bullshit. I uh, feel like that's pretty exciting. Uh, maybe I should revisit Top Gun. I honestly haven't seen it in... I wouldn't uh, recommend forever. it. I, I watched I it within the last week. and I've, <laughs> I've watched rough. it in the last couple months because my wife is a big fan of it, and she uh, recently bought it and watched it, and I sat oh. down and watched part of it. I was like, I don't care for this. Speaking of, though, okay... Let's talk about. Uh, I'll try to tie this into Tony Scott, talk okay. about, like his sort of the um, the look of Top Gun being sort of considered cheesy because it's like so much other stuff, but really he's doing it earliest and best. Mm-hmm. Um, I think "Take My Breath Away" by Berlin does not get the credit <laughs> for how amazing that song is. You know, the problem it is, is a really, really great song. It's 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 a song that is '80s, and so in you know in people's quest to make everything 80s silly <laughs> that that song that is like quintessentially 80s with the synthesizer and that sort mm-hmm. of thing and its association with top gun i think people just give it that place and don't get don't take it seriously at all even it, though it should be it really is an astounding song and mm-hmm. berlin's other stuff which doesn't really sound like that mm-hmm. it's a little more aggressive their mm-hmm. other stuff uh really good definitely a band worth checking out okay so and what's they, next they did take my breath away by the way on the glee finale last year the season or in may hmm. the season finale it was the prom song well that'll, oh, yeah. that'll get society to take it seriously what's next uh, <laughs> beverly hills cop 2 which haven't i haven't seen, seen. it haven't only, seen it. only seen the first one which is not a tony scott film it's a martin breast film and uh i think that i like beverly hills cop despite martin breast <laughs> uh revenge haven't seen it didn't say it days of thunder I haven't seen it, but I do love that title. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for a commercial movie, it's very evocative. and like, yeah, yeah. Well, and this, I, I also didn't see it. This is another example of uh, my friends loving it, and <laughs> I did not. This one I didn't even see when I was a kid because I just did not give a shit. <laughs> and it's, it's one of those things like Days of Thunder. What a great title. It's a racing movie. <laughs> no, I don't care. I know racing can be very exciting and all, but uh, and and despite the presence of a Robert Duvall and uh, Robert Town screenplay, r- yeah, right. right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, but not, it's, I don't know, just, it's it's NASCAR at a time that I feel like NASCAR hadn't. It wasn't what it is. No, now. it wasn't what. Yeah, and that's interesting. So it's uh, I, I have no it's doubt. It's the opposite that there are people... of Sylvester Stallone's Driven, which is a Formula One movie. After people stopped caring about <laughs> Formula One, <laughs> uh, yeah, and so it, I, I don't doubt that there are people that uh, enjoy NASCAR with 
with Days of Thunder in their heads, you know, <laughs> just being like, oh, this is just like the movie Days of Thunder. I don't, I don't bash NASCAR or, or anything like that. I, I just don't care. Do, do you guys listen to the uh, Stuff You Should Know podcasts? No. From time to time, yeah. You, recently they did one about uh, whiskey running, bootlegging, oh. and the fact that NASCAR, like, not in a kind of way, like, directly came from that. Really? Like, I had no idea. Like, the modifying stock cars to make them go faster to get away from the feds. Guess that makes sense. Led, <laughs> like, I mean, the original NASCAR drivers were bootleggers. Huh. Yet another similarity between Days of Thunder and Lawless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. All right, let's move on. Um, to Now, obviously, we're going to get to the one that Scott likes that nobody likes. <laughs> right. But uh, And I don't like the movie. But I think, actually, my probably my least favorite Tony Scott movie is The Last Boy Scout. Oh, I think it's a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, and I, I don't think, think I ever saw that one. Um, here's why. Because I don't think it's fun. Uh, because I think a lot of his other movies, even when they're like Man on Fire, is about some serious shit. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's it's fun. But it also um, does not take the uh, consequences of violence lightly. Uh, Man on Fire, for as much violence as there is in it, and how much he clearly enjoys showing it and shows it in a cool way. Yeah. Uh, pontificates almost like laughably at times about <laughs> uh, about the toll the violence takes, and I think the reason that Last Boy Scout never sat well with me is that it feels like a a much more callous film. It is. It absolutely is. <laughs> it, 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 the the way that you know, there's the part where Bruce Willis is like tied to the chair and he promises the guy he's like, if you, what does he say? If you touch me again, touch me I'll again, kill, I'll kill you. you. Yeah, and then he kills him by. I, which I don't think is a thing you can actually do, but he hits him in the front of the nose so hard that like his nose bone yeah. goes up into his it's face what, and punctures his brain. It's the thing I've heard him. enough times yeah, that I'm always yeah. nervous whenever things come close to my nose at a <laughs> yeah. rapid rate. Um, but uh, that's horrifying. Yeah, and it's I suppose. Like, and the opening scene is horrifying to me, but it's not. It's supposed to be like it is supposed to be hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Do you know the? Uh, you, no, I. You know what? I, I ha- okay. I have seen the last Boy Scout. I don't remember anything about it except the scene that I watched over and over, which involved uh, breasts. I was, <laughs> I was uh, very young. Um, well, the opening scene—I'm uh, going to spoil the opening of the Last Boy Scout—is a football game where the uh, I don't know running back or what have you gets the ball and he's he's running. It's or I don't know if it is. Oh, it's it's on a kickoff. It's like yeah, the very I think it's beginning a receiver of the game. or something. Yes, it is the very beginning of the game. He gets the. No, I think it's halftime. Anyway, uh, it doesn't matter. Anyway. So it's the beginning of a half, a second half, whatever. Um, it kick, gets, gets the kickoff. He's running for the touchdown. And um, all the, the opposing players are coming at him. And he reaches into his uniform <laughs> belt and pulls out a revolver and starts sh- shooting guys <laughs> while running w- towards the end zone with the football. Starts killing the people on the other team. He scores the touchdown. And then he says, life's a bitch. And he shoots himself in the head. That is the opening scene of The Last Boy Scout. you got to give it to this. I mean, it, it tells you right away what you're in for. If you can't get on with that opening scene, <laughs> and, the rest of the movie I, is not I, for you. I think I'm someone who Who, who wrote Last Boy Scout? Uh, Shane Black. Shane Black. Who of else? Of course. Yeah. Largest that, payday to that date for a screenwriter. That is a scene that I can imagine him writing. Oh, yeah. Um, is that true? I thought at, he at held that time. record for uh, the uh, Gina Davis Samuel Jackson movie that I, I actually the, like. The Long, Long Kiss Goodnight. Long Kiss Goodnight. That was later, though. So maybe at he the got time, paid more for yeah, that? Yeah, it's possible. At the okay. time, Last Boy Scout was written. Um, wow. I actually really enjoy Long Kiss Goodnight. I know that's not... I like Shane Black. Uh, I like Shane Black, too. Uh, do you like Long Kiss Goodnight? I have not seen it. Uh, have you seen it? Yeah. It's it's fun, right? It's all right. I, I, think, it's, <laughs> I think it's a lot of fun. Building a movie around Gina Davis is always, I think, a mistake. Oh, see, I think unless it's the opposite. It's the, I find her very winning. Unless it's The Accidental Tourist. I like her in The Accidental Tourist. I find her very winning. 
Cutthroat Island. I never saw Cutthroat Island. <laughs> I don't think you could blame her for that. Yeah. I, she does not deliver old-timey dialogue well. <laughs> well, that's... Okay, so she was miscast. I mean, I love Claire Danes, but I don't think she was good in Less, Les, Les Miserables. Les Miserables. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I agree with you on that. Anyway, um... Back, back, back. What was I saying? Oh, Last Boy Scout. I do really like the look of it, though. It's, yeah. It's very sort of... Uh, um, it's like hyper neon noir like yeah which fits shane black's sensibility very yeah. much and it's very much a shane black movie with its sardonic dialogue and mm-hmm. the beaten down private detective yeah um yeah. and it yeah i mean it's very aware of itself as well there's a line toward, at the very end of the movie where he's like bringing uh, damon waynes up because he teams up with damon waynes to solve crimes um like you do um <laughs> i don't want to get too bogged down in plot here <laughs> yeah. um and at the very end he's explaining to him like how to be a detective he's like it's the 90s you got to add equipped everything and so it's very aware of its place in history and yeah. when it's coming about what was it about the 90s that made characters and tv shows and movies always want to say it's the 90s or <laughs> welcome to the 90s well, they're ca- always referring to the fact that it's the 90s i've been well, watching um re-watching cheers i Anyone knows me who knows I've been rewatching Cheers for the last year because it takes a while. It's 11 seasons. I got other shit to do. But I'm into the final season. The last few seasons are in the 90s. And there's all of this, all that stuff. It's true. It's something people said a lot. I think it's probably a combination of things. One is that like it's the end of the Reagan era because the 80s were defined by Reagan. Right. Uh, and I think it's like the 90s. This is the last decade before the ch- turn of the millennium. Right. And so I think it's this. Uh, it, it you can't think of something of anything more modern than like the last step before the next big step. Right. right. And so yeah. I think it's. I get it. And so now I people do it. say it's the 21st century to about everything. So they do. Yeah. You know. Yeah. All right. Um, let's move on to uh, from my least favorite to my favorite and a lot of people's favorite uh, true romance. Um. What, what do you guys want? It add? is not Scott's favorite. <laughs> No, but I do like he it a lot. It. Um, but it's weirdly, it's a weirdly front-loaded movie, and I wonder because Quentin Tarantino originally wrote the screenplay in non-chronological order, like he does, um, and Tony Scott reorganized it to be a streamlined movie, which works well, I think, for the emotional tone. But does all the best scenes are at the beginning of the movie? You've got their initial date, which is a great scene. Uh-huh. You've got uh, the showdown with him and uh, Drexel, or whatever Gary Oldman's character's yeah. name is. And then you have the Christopher Walken Dennis Hopper showdown, yeah. and that's right at the halfway up mark of the movie. And after that, there's like some good scenes, but it never gets better than those three scenes. I guess you're right. Well, there's the um, the James Gandolfini Patricia Arquette. That's scene. A yeah, scene. that is, really, that is really great. Um, both uh, both on the page and in Tony Scott's execution, which that's that's the I think the director's cut that to me is the most memorable thing that's longer. Yeah, it is because of the violence. It's yeah. so incredibly violent and. I mean, this is quite the opposite of The Last Boy Scout. I think he treats violence very seriously in true romance. Mm-hmm. Even though it can be in this kind of fun setting, he never strays away from the consequences, which got him into a lot of trouble at the time, but I think is a much more moral take on violence. Well, than- I th- it's partially because I, I think of, of the script. I, I think even when you have a character like Dennis Hopper, who's not, we don't spend a lot of time with, but both as a function of the performance, but also what he's given to say, I, we get a strong sense of who he is. Yeah. And so... Um, so the idea of him dying is a big deal 
you know, as opposed to disposable characters, which it's a lot easy. It's a lot easier to sort to sort of cast aside. Whereas when it's you know a handful of characters that you feel like you know, even if you don't like them, you feel like you know them, and so their death means something to you. And so and I think I think Tony that, Scott rises to that challenge. That's something that Tarantino excels at. Yes. at doing in, in yeah. a lot of his films. Um, that, I, real quick, James Gandolfini is like a really great actor and all that. Um, <laughs> okay, like in The Sopranos <laughs> and such. His performance in True Romance might be my favorite of his really? performances. He is so great with not a, not a whole lot to do as far as screen time, but like he's given so much to do his little monologue, mm-hmm. and then you know just the the physicality of it, and just like and that's that that scene, of course, is not just a function of of him and, and Patricia Arquette, but like and but the the directing as well. But I love his performance. I like the way he delivers that that monologue and just makes this guy just. So brutally evil. Yeah, according to Tony Scott, he really got into that character and stayed at a Fleabag motel with ha- which had no telephones for like <laughs> two months at a stretch. So they couldn't get in touch with him through much of the shoot. They had to like send somebody over there to pick him up. Oh, I bet that person was thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> and he apparently wanted Patricia Arquette to actually stab him in the foot when she stabs him in the foot. So yeah, James Gandolfi is a much more interesting guy than I thought. Um, the film does have a. I, Having not seen uh, Last Boy Scout in a while, um, and then I, you know, I didn't see Beverly's, Beverly Hills Cop Two or, or Revenge, but uh, or, or Days of Thunder. But I do remember Top Gun being a particularly kind of clean-looking yeah. film, clean-cut, one could say, um, and shiny, shiny. Yes, a nice, uh, especially during that uh, volleyball scene. But I definitely <laughs> like you see reflections in the yeah. Aviator glasses, obviously, but also yeah, the, the like, visors. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just it is a constant. Yeah, there's a nice sheen over everything, but um, but True Romance, I think, might as far as the films I've seen, I think is the first instance of Tony Scott really embracing grit and grime, not merely in the way it's cut, but also just in the look of it. Yeah, it feels dirty, you know. And not even just with the character, not, not even just like the Gary Oldman character who, because of who he is, you expect him to be kind of gross and grimy. But also like even our leads who, while they're like young and attractive and hip and all that, like the places where they hang out, the the, the way they dress, like it just seems like, like the smell coming off that movie <laughs> is not pleasant. Well, I think that's partially because as much as he treats the violence seriously and those kind of elements, Tony Scott does seem to enjoy violence a lot. Mm-hmm. And there is some, an extra kind of ick factor about the director indulging that like as much as he can which is disturbing on one hand but much more effective dramatically and mm-hmm. in some senses morally uh yeah i, yeah, I, I don't I mean to say that, as, that i think that's a good point i don't mean to say that as a negative but oh, yeah. like the things that we know tony scott to be from like i'd say 2000 on i'm trying to like find uh find like where that's where like hints of it start uh yeah. in the films that precede that um the other thing about True Romance and those those early scenes is how effectively he made. Now I've never been to Detroit, but he made parts of Los Angeles look like they could be Detroit. Like, yeah, they I, did I, shoot in Detroit a little bit. Um, yeah, there are certain. I mean, the opening shots are clearly yeah. you, don't, you don't get snow in Los <laughs> Angeles, but there there are locations I pass regularly: the Vista Theater um, and the comic book shop where Christian Slater's character works, which has been long closed but is on Highland. Uh, um, that I still like have this sort of cognitive dissonance of being like, yeah, I recognize that and I recognize it from the movie, but I don't believe that it right. is in the same place. Like I, you know, he, uh, 
and I guess um, part of the credit goes to uh, Christian Slater and Patricia Arquette for acting like they're cold. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Especially on that rooftop scene or the outside the billboard outside his apartment. Yeah, yeah. Where they're bundled up and I don't know where that was shot but they do look like they're freezing. Yeah. And that's an interesting scene actually because on the page Tarantino wrote that <laughs> to take place just in Slater's apartment because mm-hmm. he's just like oh yeah they're having a conversation they'd probably be in the living room so of course Tony Scott puts it outside in front of a billboard yeah. that's like gorgeously lit and yeah. so I always thought that was really cool yeah uh, and there's a line in that scene that has just become a part of my regular lexicon when he says I'll throw caution to the wind and let the chips fall where they may yeah. which is a mixed metaphor that I use <laughs> at least once a week um, throwing caution to the wind a lot are you? <laughs> yeah I do that a lot um, should we move on? sure sure Good. I like, I like that we're making making time. Uh, let's move on to the one I've seen most re- or rewatched most recently. Uh, it was the first thing I wanted to rewatch. Oddly, after after he died, and after True Romance, probably the Tony Scott film I've seen the most. Uh, it's Crimson Tide. This is probably my favorite of of his films. Uh, Man on Fire is pretty great. I like that one a lot. But I think Crimson Tide is my favorite, and certainly the one I've seen the most. I've probably seen it like ten times. Um, although I will say, rewatching it this time also. Like True Romance, most of the best stuff comes earlier in the movie for me, I think. I've only seen it once, so I'm not as in tune to the structure of it, but it's all right. Um, all right. Uh, but I, the, the actual, like, I guess, I, okay, spoilers for Crimson Tide, you know. The fact that they don't end up shooting nuclear missiles at anything <laughs> <laughs> means that there is, uh, even though that's what you want to happen, there's also a just a... It's a weird deflation of the dramatic tension. It's uh, it, rejecting Chekhov's gun theory. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> so it, uh, it 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 sort of ends on a a, a bit of a flat flat note, and um, also rewatching it. Uh, I mean, the times I've seen it since I learned that Tarantino uh, did a lot of work on it, you re- it really sticks out. But the Silver Surfer, <laughs> yeah, but also the the like. The thing about the horses, which is clearly a breed of horses that he... I didn't look it up, but Tarantino clearly made up this breed of horses uh, <laughs> that are born black but turn white as they age mm-hmm. that, that, that Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman talk about. It's um, it's obviously an invented sort of uh, metaphorical thing. And also, the racist thing between De- Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman isn't there earlier in the movie. So it, it almost feels like Let's make Gene Hackman a little bit racist at the end in order to up the stakes a little bit. I don't think it, I, I don't think actually, um, I don't think it makes him that. I don't think it makes him racist. I don't think it even makes him a little bit racist. You know, I, I think was, it, always run the way around, but they're born black, they turn white. Anyway. Right. Um, I think it's just, it's one more instance where like these two guys just can't even agree on this horse. And, and I think, I think it is this knowledge that one guy is older and white and in and has more power one guy is younger and black and is i'm going to put it in the in the terminology that like the character might think uppity <laughs> you know <laughs> is it that gene hackman's character the gene think. hackman's character might think you know just this idea of like it's like this guy is this guy is not my kind of guy <laughs> you know but like he's he's uh he is under me, not merely as a function of uh, like rank, but also like what is he doing? Like stepping outside of this, like Gene Hackman's character is very aware of how things are supposed to be. And any chance 
any opportunity he gets to sort of dress down somebody, even if he doesn't necessarily believe it. Like, I don't actually believe that his character is racist, but if if he is going to... But if he implies something, it's so that he can exert whatever power he has. Um, and and just that kind of that recognition of like almost this is like you are one of like three black people on this boat. And so like I, I don't know. There there is something there. It's it's palpable, but I don't think it is something that the character actually is. I think it is something he uses he recognizes it as a tool or as a possible weapon. But again, doesn't actually say it. Um, this one one of the things that I like about the film is how much stuff is not said, um, and for me, I do enjoy that. There is there is by the way an explosion at the end of the film, but it's an explosion of applause and cheers when everyone discovers that the world's not going to end, <laughs> um, which is no small thing, you know. Um, and uh, I think it's I think it's a brilliantly made film. I think it it does a really great job of like not making either character the. Cl- cl- clear hero or clear villain like ultimately you want to i think you're naturally you naturally want to side with the person who errs on the side of caution but at the same time like gene hackman's character could absolutely be right and if he's right then they're the only ones that can stop him right and so it's just like well shoot what do we do now you know um and so i there's so much to that movie that i like and i think it's i think it's everything that tony scott can be used in exactly the right way the the way he cuts uh the film together like i can't think of of a more tense film and one that need, that should be as tense as that film and you know knowing when to like draw things out knowing when to make things go quickly um he just he just really i feel like it just attacks that movie with all of his talent for like creating you know cl- like claustrophobia and the real the realization that like at any given point you are as far as like the rivalry between the 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 captain the xo like you are you're stuck with this person in the same place (laughs) you can't go anywhere with this person who kind of wants to kill you and the constantly shifting loyalties in the crew like it just it's i don't know it's not it's not just the clean film of top gun nor is it the messiness of like a man on fire it's somewhere in between and i feel like it is him at the absolute height of his ability i think like in in terms of his um uh tendency toward the word we keep coming back to is kineticism Mm -hmm. uh in in his editing i think he intentionally sort of took a step back on that in in crimson tide i agree and, and used he just used the the realities of life on a submarine to stand in for that. Occasionally things aren't level, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and also, I, I don't know if you can really smoke on submarines, but people smoke constantly in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that, that certainly adds uh, um, texture. Uh, and, of course, uh, everyone's working with their 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 face lit by bright red or green, you know, computer right. screens. Like, he uh, really... Um, he doesn't have to inject the things that he does in other movies here. And I think him recognizing that and not going completely batshit with it is exactly the <laughs> right. Like the knowing, right choice. knowing when to show restraint, uh, uh, I think is a, you know, yeah. an important factor of, uh, of directing. Although the opening scene at, um, I think it's, is it 
Denzel Washington's kid's birthday party? Or is it Viggo Mortensen's kid's birthday party and Denzel Washington's there? I don't I can't remember. But the opening scene, like one of the few scenes that doesn't take place on a submarine, uh, does have the thing I was talking about, the using like haze and like smoke in the air to create Mm -hmm. uh, sort of atmosphere. (laughs) But it's to the point where I'm like, are these kids not? We're like, there's kids here and clearly this house is on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Something is burning somewhere. It is a marked contrast from the more reality-based center of the movie. I I did want to uh, also comment on uh and we haven't yet but i feel like we should um how tony scott uses music i think is interesting um we talked about take my breath away we sure did (laughs) absolutely um completely in context of tony scott but uh i remember i uh as you know david i own a lot of scores and soundtracks and i remember one of the er one of the first ones i ever bought was for crimson tide it's that now of course as i've gotten older i realize what hans zimmer does and that's you know he does very much in that movie but it does have it it has this naval quality to it of like a naval choir just Mm -hmm. you know singing and and the incorporation of like uh, our eternal father strong to save and that kind of thing Um, it always makes me think that it's intentionally quoting hunt for an october which has like the scenes of the actual russian sailors like right singing like this big like choral mm-hmm. like you know it's not even on the it's 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 diegetic it's actually right. the the sailors do you know what i'm talking about i don't know yeah no i know you guys mean. have seen hunt for october i actually yeah. never have uh but yeah do you know the what i'm talking yeah. about yeah so uh, i always whenever i watch crimson head and it has those the choir choral notes i guess yeah uh, i always think of hunt for october and wonder if it was intentional possibly and it's just it really it it does add a uh sort of an operatic quality to the film that considering how how maybe not small but how confined and limited the film is to have a but of course big things are happening uh, worldwide and and by using this type of music it, it with these two gargantuan figures at the core of the film i feel like he he really does I don't know. He makes a, a film that seems small and limited much larger and about hu- like big things. Like he understands the tone. Yeah, you never completely. forget the stakes. Right. Yeah. Cool. So, um, all right. Crimson oh. Tide. Oh boy. Yeah, I just wanted to comment that yeah, we, we haven't, haven't talked you talk about Crimson Tide at all. That's all right. Uh, just, we, we haven't. We brought you here to talk about one movie. <laughs> all right. <laughs> we haven't mentioned how good Tony Scott is with actors, and I think. It, Crimson Tide is a perfect example because it gives you two very strong archetypes: the classic immovable object. Uh, can't remember the other one. Unstoppable, Unstoppable force. force yeah. yeah, which will come in later. Um, <laughs> and it's a classic setup, but he gives them you know little things to do and little character traits. Denzel Washington's more you know chummy with the crew members, mm-hmm. but it's not like uh, Gene Hackman's like impersonal with them. He just like has an authority position, and when you catch him in you know, more uh, intimate moments. He is more warm and generous. I also like that, uh, sorry, I'm interrupting you again, that it seems like they're setting up like, oh, Denzel Washington is the intellectual. Right. And Mm -hmm. Gene Gene Hackman clearly is is not. But then you realize that Gene Hackman is actually, his character really is really smart. It's a conscious choice he's making of defining what a soldier or a sailor or a captain is. Yeah, absolutely. That he's intentionally like de-intellectualizing himself for the purposes of his task. And it's a a philosophy. Yeah, he's thought through his i mean he's been in the navy for probably decades and he's thought through the position he's come to and his uh moral position on that 
And there's also so a, I interrupted you. No, that's what I all had to say. There's also <laughs> another performance in there that I love, and this and this speaks very much to what you're what you're talking about. Um, and I, I think I've talked about this scene on the show before, possibly four years ago, because <laughs> um, I know it was, it was early on. Um, and I think other critics have, have mentioned this as well that uh, George Zunza uh-huh. from. Uh, the first season of Law and Order is what I know him from, and he does the voice of the ventriloquist in Batman the Animated Series. Um, he uh, plays the chief of the boat, and when the sub is sinking, um, and they just keep going further and further, and after a certain point, the pressure will be too much, and right. the sub will implode. Um, and you know the the music is very mournful, and it is George. It is the chief of the boat's job to say at what depth where they are, yeah. and it keeps going lower and lower. And you know it's it's extremely. It would be easy to play that scene as as tense, and it is tense, of course. But both in the the way the music is, the way it is shot, because it's not quick editing going back and forth to people's faces, uh, and the way he chooses to have George Zunza announce we are now at this depth it it is resignation yeah it is we're, well it's it's over we're mm-hmm. all going to die and as opposed to i think another filmmaker would have justifiably had it be like just incredibly tense all the time <laughs> as opposed to just sad and mournful yeah. and uh, i love that it's such an interesting choice yeah tony scott does know how to hit mournful when it comes to it mm-hmm. and sometimes in the same moments as tense or sometimes in the same moments as extremely violent yeah uh, speaking of i want to before we I mean, obviously we're spending more time on crimson tide than anything it's else a great here. movie um <laughs> Speaking of extremely violent, because Crimson Tide, you, you, we talked about with True Romance and other things, his penchant uh, for violence. Um, there's not that much violence in Crimson right. Tide. But I will say, again, spoilers, the way Steve Zahn's character eats it is, ooh. I don't remember. It's is when it, the pressure, is it Steve Zahn? I think is it is. It, I think it is. Because the pressure's coming in and basically a big, like, Ugh. bolt thing like is shot inward oh yeah and hits steve's on right in the face, right in the face. <laughs> yeah and like and you, he's it happens very quickly and then but you see his body falling in like sort of red coming yeah. up through yeah. the water oh it's brutal yeah there's a lot of interesting casting in that steven zahn is in that ricky schroeder's in that ryan phillippe's in that yeah so oh, yeah yeah no. gandolfini's in it again yeah he is. Yeah. ryan phillippe is the guy who's obsessed with the fish tank yeah it's the <laughs> no, he's just the guy who stares um, the fish tank That's and uh yeah he seems like he's like a character from in red line <laughs> <laughs> found his way into a uh, crimson tide okay and and there is one little moment matt craven oh yeah i love ha- he uh he's talking about how the uh the russians or whatever like they're fueling their missiles and then he says a phrase that is technically true but somehow matt craven saying it makes it sound horrifying where he says you don't put on a condom unless you're gonna fuck and i'm just like <laughs> like oh i get it matt craven but ah oh, you've made it sound so horrible uh, i'm a big fan of matt craven yeah he's good he is awesome at being awesome in movies that aren't good because <laughs> he's in uh what's the movie the michael Crichton movie with uh, paul walker timeline is that what it's called <laughs> yeah he's in that yeah uh, uh which is a ridiculous movie it's so bad you and i laughed um, at one scene over and over again yeah we, Wait, who is, is that a john mctiernan movie uh who i don't that? know i don't know uh but yeah there is a scene where they have to get back to the present and they're in like <laughs> this is the, not gonna read at all <laughs> no but they're in like the battle of agincourt or something like that yeah and um <laughs> They have to. They have to go, and there's this shot of like it's from the like 
uh, roof of the the wall of the city or the castle or whatever, and it's Paul Walker standing amidst all this melee and just like being very frantic and being like, "Cool, we gotta go." And he's yeah, just he's like, like, "No, come on, let's go." Let's go. He's, he's like a kid who wants to leave the <laughs> yeah, store. He's just throwing a little fit. Yeah. Cool, let's go. Uh, and yeah, we would just watch that over and over again. Um, also, Matt Craven is in The Clearing, that movie that everyone forgot about with Willem Dafoe. I like that movie. And, oh, I did not like that movie. But uh, he's great. He's the FBI guy who's mm-hmm. like staying at Hellmere and Talos while they're trying to find And his job is to be sensitive, sensitive and kind, which is not Matt Craven's thing, but he yeah. does pretty well. He's, he's, he's great in the movie. He's yeah. the only part I like. Okay, sorry. Moving on. Yeah. Uh, the Fan? I never yeah. saw it. <laughs> I saw it this week. <laughs> okay. How'd it go? I liked it a lot. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it is insane. Um, it is a movie in which at least the first ten minutes, if not the first five, we don't know what Robert De Niro's character does for a living, but he's in a boardroom meeting, and all of a sudden his boss takes out a knife and starts stabbing a car door with it in like a boardroom setting. So right away, again, last Boy Scout kind of thing, you know what you're in for with this kind of movie. It's crazy. Why Go is ahead. there a car door in a boardroom? Because uh, he's demonstrating how powerful their knives are that they sell. <laughs> and he's like, if you can't sell this, and he's just stabbing the shit out of this car door. He's, he goes on to say about how the car door is like Japanese made. I don't know where he got the car door, but he said it was so flimsy that they just found it or something. Uh, all right. Um, <laughs> um, we're going to say else? something. Oh, yeah, no, I got no, plenty go to say about the fan. Yeah, go right um, you know what? You talk a little bit. All right. Uh, he starts to, Tony Scott starts to employ a very weird structure to this movie in which it goes because it's about Robert De Niro who plays a fan of baseball and uh, Wesley Snipes is the star baseball player with whom he's obsessed uh, and it employs a strategy right from the beginning of doing one scene with Snipes one scene with De Niro and it just goes back and forth between those and giving them very small episodes you know very small crises to manage mm-hmm. so the scenes are kind of complete stories within themselves but they start to add up to the narrative and r- so right away this is the same thing I was saying with The Hunger these guys are like linked even though they don't know each other yet they will eventually but so when they come to meet each other, it seems like the most natural thing in the world mm. because we're familiar with these two guys, like almost interacting with each other across the space of the movie. Hmm. That's, that does sound interesting. If I hadn't heard <laughs> such overtly horrible things about it, I might uh, I might seek it out. But I thought uh, you'd seen it. No. Oh, I thought you said you saw it. No. Um, yeah. I mean, Robert De Niro is definitely shooting for the rafters. It's when he starts to get a little out there with his performances, either really big or just completely bored with where he is that was what like 95 96 96. yeah yeah so it's Um, just coming off casino and just yeah yeah that's weird like (laughs) i mean i guess he still he still had like jackie brown and even analyzed this which i think he's quite good at. i haven't seen it um but uh yeah and then i yeah i guess maybe he just got bored um (laughs) and that's the thing it's possible i might have told you i saw i saw uh some scenes yeah from the fan because i was at a uh I think uh, Doug loves interrupting movies, which is a thing that was right. uh, that Doug Benson did here for a while. And uh, I don't remember who the guest was, but they're talking about sports movies. And whoever the guest was brought several clips of the fan, which they watched. <laughs> and and just in those clips, and of course, you know, they're just clips, but it's just like, wow, this really looks uh, just totally over the top and ridiculous. It is, it is absolutely over the top and ridiculous, but I think it's very smart in, in the ways that count. And in their final showdown, which somebody said is remarkably similar to the naked gun which i suppose it is because it takes place at a baseball stadium and somehow robert de niro just like transports onto the field in an umpire's uniform there's no way he would have ever gotten there because we've seen him during the game being like across town so this is another weird like metaphysical thing which i'm willing to excuse um but 
it shows uh, there's a shot of Robert De Niro and behind him is the Jumbotron, which is filming this whole conflict totally, you know, blase to the whole thing. Um, and you see Wesley Snipes face like behind him. And it's this weird kind of Almodovar moment where yeah. you get the direct contrast between these guys who's like bigger than life. This guy is just like small and conniving, holding his knife, about to pitch it into Wesley Snipes. Um <laughs> And yeah, so it, there's a lot going on in the fan that I think is really interesting, even though it is completely over the top and absurd in a lot of regards. Is it? Is it? I mean, is it worth it? Because you've talked about it like from a from a structure uh, standpoint, which sounds actually kind of interesting. The idea of these two parallel stories that will eventually reach this bloody con- conclusion. I like the idea of that, but uh, but from a content point of view, <laughs> is it worth it at all? I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm say a story is only as good as how it's told, you know, and it's not the most original story. It's not the best story, but it's never not interesting. It's always very, uh, attention grabbing and yeah. So you're saying that your favorite Tony Scott movie is now the fan. Obviously. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Let's move on to, uh, enemy of the state. Okay. Um, uh, which is a movie that I, I, I really like, um, Although I can never get over the fact that it ends essentially the same way that True Romance ends. Yeah. <laughs> uh, everyone has a gun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, um, Tyler, I know you like Enemy of the State. We talked about it before. I do, yes. Uh, Scott? Generally, I think it also should have ended with them at the train yard. Uh-huh. That's kind of where the film is building to, and it he directs that scene very well. There's a palpable sense of dread, and the only reason they escape from helicopters dozens of guys with guns and god knows what else is that they just barely make it across the tracks when this train's coming by uh-huh. not a fast moving train either and i think he kind of cheats the premise there whereas if it ended there it would have had some weight to it and i don't think that the way the tables are turned in the final act is really sold very well and i don't really feel like these guys can suddenly take on the u.s government when they've when we've seen how powerful they are yeah, I think that's a that's a good point. That is something that has bothered me in uh, other movies. I talked about um, uh, Spielberg's War of the Worlds, how I uh, don't like how Tom Cruise goes from being an, uh, an everyman to right. an action hero just at the drop of a hat. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, that does that has bothered me in other films, but I think maybe because of Tony Scott's larger-than-life style, it it works for me. He sells it. Fair enough. Um, I think, yeah, it's, it's a film that really, I think... Uh, this is certainly not the fil- first film that, that deals with his, I would say, hyperkinetic style, but I think this is the first one that really employs it all the way through consistently, and it is really a function of, uh, of the story, because it re- I think it really makes sense that the idea of being... Wa- like He's a guy who, who deals in multiple cuts, different angles at a- in any given scene, yeah. and so in a film about surveillance and being watched all the time from a num- probably <laughs> yeah, yeah. a number of different angles like it makes perfect sense it's and a, uh, I guess that would be a structuralist choice is that sure you consider that structuralism maybe formalism I don't maybe know formalism? yeah okay um, and so I like I like that I do think he uh, you know you, you made reference to um, to how he is with actors and I think this plays into it but like I, I can't think of I can't think of any film that he's made where there are not at least two strong they might be cliche but right. two strong characters sometimes there are more yeah but it's always at least two and there is usually a pretty strong sense of relationship between the two and will smith and gene hackman in enemy of the state i think have a good strong 
relationship that is clearly not a they don't necessarily like each other no. you know, they, they genuinely but they do recognize that they should probably stick together if they're going to you know benefit from one another and uh and it, there are mo- extreme like a lot of hackman's lines are pretty cheesy um but he sells he, them. Sell, he yeah. sells them because that's you know that's behind him behind enemy lines yeah. and that's pretty much what <laughs> yeah. he did yeah <laughs> when he was a working actor he he sold yeah yeah and so um but yeah, and also just the just the larger cast. Uh, yeah, it's a stacked cast when you yeah. look at it now. It's got Jack Black and Jason Lee, actually Seth Green, yeah, Jimmy Kennedy, Seth Green, who yeah. isn't even credited in the movie. Oh, really? <laughs> he just yeah. shows up. Yeah, Barry Pepper, uh, yeah. Jake oh, right. Busey, Jason Robards for the Jason, first scene. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, John Voight, John Voight, um, Phil Baker Hall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, who's the? Uh, I'm missing someone. There's a, a mob guy. Oh, Tom Sizemore. Tom Sizemore, yeah. isn't it? Yes. Yeah, and it's, and I don't know, like, and, and I, who's, I like. Oh, sorry, who's oh. Will Smith's wife? Oh shoot, I just looked this up the other day, and now I don't recall. I don't but know. um, but I do like. I don't know. It's it's such a. You know, if if Crimson Tide, and it sounds like the fan are are small films, Crimson Tide because it's contained, and the fan because it's very much it's about somebody that is obsessed, right? And you're with one person so it really is just about those two people um, uh, Regina King that's oh, right okay. yes. um, yeah, also Lisa Bonet I'm sorry yeah, yeah. that's her name I can't uh, even think of her name either. Um, uh, Lauren Dean uh, Ian Hart right. yeah Scott Kahn yeah. Gabriel Byrne I forgot about him Gabriel oh yeah, yeah. he's in it for like two seconds yeah. I know but that's kind of awesome dressed exactly like uh Robert De Niro in tra- Taxi Driver and driving a taxi. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. There's a lot of 70s obsession going uh, on in that stage of Tony Scott's career, especially in Gene Hackman well, playing yeah. basically the guy from The Conversation. Yeah, Harry, Harry Call in The Conversation, Harry Brill yeah. in yeah. Uh, Enemy of the State. James LeGrow. That's right. Uh, uh, I'm guessing a vent unknown and a gun. Yeah, yeah she probably. is uh, John Voight's wife. Oh, okay. Huh. Um, yeah, and it's one of the few films in which Tony Scott really nails... Uh, a romantic aspect of the movie most of his relationships are between two men mm-hmm. but i think will smith's marriage has put her really well in that movie yeah i think so it's it, it, it after a certain point it isn't given a whole lot of time well yeah but what is he there, is on the run <laughs> what is there is uh the, f- the really fact establishes that it, it well the um the fact that lisa bonet's character is not just like a contact he has but is like a source of tension in his marriage yeah he like had an affair with her am i right i haven't seen yeah. it a long time yeah. but uh, it was some years before we see it but yeah yeah um that's that speaks to how much care is being put into the portrayal of of the marriage that that they're that i don't know who the credited screenwriter is i have it pulled up here but uh um it was just some guy <laughs> but um it had uh, uncredited rewrites from aaron sorkin and tony oh. gilroy oh. actually so Mar- david marconi is okay. the uh, I can see a lot of Tony Gilroy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and just and yeah, that's a that's a really interesting uh, twist because when you think of Will Smith, you think of somebody that is likable and inherently decent. Yeah, and the idea yeah. that he has done this thing, we don't see it, right. so it makes it easier to ignore. But it is something <laughs> that he's definitely done, and that gets brought up a lot. So it's, I, I don't th- think it's easy to ignore because the it's definitely weighing on the wife. And any time right. Felice Bonet character is brought up, she's like visibly agitated by yeah. it. Um, uh, but just right. it, the way the way that he uh, starts with a smaller story, uh, and then makes it bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger, it really does add. To, which is what it needs to be. It need, you really do need to get the fact, get the sense that this guy is a is against the world now. Right. He thought he was against this person, and then these guys over here, and then these guys, and then literally. I cannot get away. Yeah, it's, I mean, for most of the movie, he thinks he's against the mob, and they're not. They're like totally yeah. clueless to the whole thing. Yeah. 
Uh, all right, I want to move on to a movie that I really like, even though I haven't seen it in a while. Spy Game. Mm. Uh, do you like Spy Game? Yeah, I rewatched it this week and liked um, a lot. Okay. Uh, what did you? What did? Yeah, what did you do this week? I don't think you were watching a lot of Scott movies. <laughs> I was still at work. I promise. And in some ways, um, Harry is it? Wait, it's Brill, right? In Enemy of the yeah. State. I always get them mixed up. Brill and Rob Redford's character are. Um, uh, are similar in that they are um, a- aging members of the sort of surveillance community. Yeah. Um, and that are... Uh, and, and Tony Scott is obviously this, the 2000s. He's getting up there in age, too, so maybe this uh, speaks to that. But they are underestimated because of their age. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. Um, to the detriment of those who under underestimate right. them. <laughs> Uh, particularly Robert Redford, who, who uh, I can't remember his character's name is by game. You saw it's, it. Uh, shoot. Uh, I Nathan Muir. Nathan Muir. Okay. Um, Hard last name. Yeah, I don't like that. Um, <laughs> Brad Pitt has a great name, though. His name's Tom Bishop. Yeah, that's easy. Um, uh, he's clearly, uh, Nathan Muir is clearly, um, I think, playing to that in, yeah. in, a, in, a, in, a, lot of, in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, I don't know. Do you uh, agree that that's a a uh, theme that might have to do with Tony Scott. Uh, yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way before, but that's totally on point. And uh, yeah, Redford plays, I mean, he plays like a spy, you know, he just acts dumb and <laughs> expects, waits for everybody else to feed him information that he might not know while staying one step ahead of them. Yeah. Uh, but this movie also has a, um, uh, what's, what's the word? Uh, an unconventional structure in that it has sort of one storyline that's taking place in the present day that uh is mostly Robert redford brad pitt yeah. is like chained sort of up somewhere yeah for, for it and then has a bunch of small stories peppered throughout that are flashbacks told you know chronologically um but that also add up to one big story yeah uh, i haven't seen it since you and i watched it uh the first time about 10 years ago now um yeah and uh, I remember liking it. You and I both really liked it quite a bit, but I really, I wish I could say I remember more of it, but I don't. Aside, of course, from what you consider to be the best vomit scene, it's or one, one of the best, best vomit <laughs> scenes ever. Do you know what I'm talking about? When he yeah, he's, he goes in the, the bathroom and just chugs the thing. The, and, he's, in, I guess, in East Berlin, I think. Yeah. And, he, he, and he, like, he's about to get caught, and he needs to look like a just a harmless drunk guy yeah. <laughs> so he real quick tosses back some ipecac and vomits into a <laughs> urinal just as the guys are coming in to very work. suddenly too it's yeah. like i didn't i don't know what that stuff is but it takes place it takes effect fast <laughs> yeah i don't know if ipecac i've never actually done that i don't know if it is ipecac i just was assumed yeah, it was it but be. i've never actually had any ipecac but that's what it's but it's a well it's a well done scene because i don't know how they did it except maybe to have brad pitt vomit <laughs> yeah <laughs> could be yeah, yeah. So, but uh but yeah, and now, and now that you mention now that you mention like the structure, it's starting to come back to me, but not in a way that I can talk about with any authority. Yeah, well, it's very. I mean, it plays a twenty-four hour timeline that they like have to make a deadline by, and it keeps doing the timestamp thing of like reminding you that this deadline's catching up, where Brad Pitt's going to be executed uh-huh. if uh, Robert Redford can't pull off this mission, while also doubling back and building their relationship. And it's weird, actually, the last scene takes place in the chronology of the reality of the movie. Um, Brad Pitt and Robert Redford have this like falling out and they don't get along and this is like 10 years or so I mean it's a while before the movie actually starts um, and even then he, Robert Redford still feels this need to save Brad Pitt at the risk of his career and maybe mm-hmm. even his life because what he's doing is possibly illegal yeah. um, and that 
there's that element, and then their final redemption takes place while Brad Pitt's in a helicopter and Nathan Muir is on his way back home from in D.C., and you don't actually see them connect, but we still feel that connection across the world. And this goes yeah. back to what yes. I was saying about the metaphysical connections that Tony Scott employs. Yeah, and I mean, this might be the most, uh, or that's applied most. Until uh, Deja Vu. Oh, right, which, which I haven't seen. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. And um, I think there's even some of it in uh, Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, anything else about Spy Game? Uh, again, um, it is, uh, I mean, he's he's gone a little crazy here in ways that i like with <laughs> uh with his choices i mean there's a i mean you, we talked about uh true romance the scene uh tarantino wrote it in an apartment he put it out in front of a yeah. billboard <laughs> there's a scene there's a conversation with Bradford <laughs> and brad pitt that takes place on the roof of a building and is and is photographed by a helicopter yeah, it sure is <laughs> and at one point brad pitt throws a chair off the roof of the building in frustration and we never really think about what happens to that chair yeah yeah uh, There's another movie to be made about uh, sort of like an in-the-bedroom type about a family <laughs> whose uh, the patriarch gets crushed by a chair that <laughs> fell off a building and how they're dealing with that. Um, I've always thought someone should make a movie about the people in action movies. <laughs> they're oh. just like trying to get to work. Oh, absolutely. And there's a huge car chase yeah. blocking yeah. off yeah. traffic for the city-wide. Mm-hmm. Um, also, a really quick, uh, couple of people in the cast of Spy Game. There's the British actor with the eyebrows, uh, David... Hemming is that his name? Oh, David Hemmings, yeah. David Hemmings, uh, right? And he okay. is—he's with the uh, the Asian businessmen who were oh yeah uh, watching Baywatch. <laughs> uh, but also, this is the first place that I ever saw. Um, I'm going to forget his name now. Stephen Delane. Oh, okay, is that his yeah. name? I don't know. Um, From John Adams and uh, yeah, yeah, he played Jefferson and John Adams, and he's been in a bunch of stuff now. But he's the he's the the sort of in office in the antagonist to Robert oh, yeah, yeah. character in the in the present day. He's a fantastic actor and this is yeah, this is the first place I saw him and always remember him from this uh because I liked his performance so much. All right. On to Well, I never saw Beat the Devil, which was the short that he did. Yeah, I meant to watch it this week but uh, failed to. Was that for BMW? Yeah. It's for a car company. Yeah. And it's apparently where he starts to try out the techniques that'll uh begin to flower in man on fire and then just explode in domino <laughs> yeah let's talk about man on fire because i when this movie came out i watched it a billion times um because i found it so so fascinating in that <laughs> it's a um it's a an operatically violent action movie um but that is also operatically angsty about about violence mm-hmm. uh and, and i and, that, and then it had been probably a, a, close to a decade since I'd seen it. It came out in 2004, so I watched it a lot that year for a year. So it's been seven years. I watched it again, or most of it again, uh, recently. Um, and I still found myself responding to a lot of the stuff that I initially responded to, but found myself taken out of the movie more than I used to be by the by the dialogue, by the script. It's, it's uh, painfully on the nose. Uh, at, at, at parts or or in some ways it's uh attempting to be flowery or to wax poetic about things <laughs> when it's really not that right uh and there i guess there's a b way b movie way of looking at it that it's just it's just fun you know when he uh uh denzel washington uh uh, gains access to this elderly couple's uh, apartment. Completely, you know, they have no idea what's going on. But he get he just goes in there because it's the perfect vantage point from which to shoot a rocket propelled grenade <laughs> at an SUV. And the um, the old man tells him, you know, 
uh, that even though he doesn't know what why Denzel is doing what he's doing, he starts to preach the idea of forgiveness. Right. Something about Denzel's stature made this old man realize this guy's seeking <laughs> vengeance. And he says it, he says uh, something about forgiveness. Um, and uh, um, Denzel says, forgiveness is between them and God. It's my job to arrange the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, Christopher Walken, the line that was in the trailer, yes. that I love, which is that, um, uh, uh, death is his art, and he's about to paint his masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Okay, couple things. First off, you're not giving this old man enough credit, all right? <laughs> because if somebody comes in with a grenade launcher uh-huh. and they're getting ready to shoot it at something, chances are someone there's some kind of unforgiveness going on, and he's probably holding some kind of grudge. Yeah, that's yeah. not a typical assassination tool. You know, I, yeah, maybe that probably wasn't contracted for that. So, I guess I'm not well versed in the way. I would assume he was some sort of assassin. If I were the I guess so, yeah. resident of that apartment. <laughs> but uh, but perhaps, you know, perhaps it's like, well, maybe this guy's an assassin because uh, somebody uh, wronged him earlier in his life. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I have not seen it recently, so it's entirely possible that the on the nose, because that is one thing I know very much about the dialogue, is that it's on the nose. Um but uh, I kind of liked that. I really liked that it wanted to explore the toll that violence takes mm-hmm. on this guy's soul and that he is just so damn tired uh-huh. of and is just so beaten down by the choices he's made that he just he's just going to talk about it very plainly. Now, perhaps in a flowery way, but he's not going he's just going to say it. He's just going to say what he wants to say. And that every character has a world weariness to them. So I kind of like that they're just like, I don't have time to bullshit about this. Like, I got a, I got a strong, like, unforgiven quality uh-huh. to it, you know, where it's just like, it's a hard thing killing a man. You take away everything he has, everything he's ever going to have. Like, it's just, that's very plain speaking. And it's from a guy who is just, who spent years thinking about this and now is just saying it. And so... um, now we've been talking mostly about the script. Uh, we should probably talk about uh, the way in which the film was made. Well, but real quick, it, it I want to talk about how great how great Denzel is in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a the, the one part when he uh, for those who haven't seen the movie, uh, I, I guess you don't know what you're what you're missing because there's a part where he has a bomb uh, up the rectum of <laughs> the guy that he's interrogating and yes. says, you know, this is going to go off and you have sixty seconds to tell me what I need to know or this is going to gonna go off and the, the movie has the gall to be like like dour and like somber about about this insane thing yeah and i i, I like that that's, i mean i sound like i'm making fun of it but i actually really like that but he says to the guy he's like go on he's like i got all the time in the world you don't but i do <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, a very very well delivered uh and funny um but yeah uh, okay so as far as the the choices that he that he makes is a as a director, particularly in particularly in post production here, um, the editing it's not only that it's um, uh, there, there's lots of cuts uh, and there are, but it's even the even when you're within one shot, the image isn't isn't staying still. And I don't just mean that the camera is moving; I mean that the frames are shuttering. Yeah, and, like there's and, something and like with that. the pro- a problem with the projection. Yeah, and the um, the the film takes place in Mexico City. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, one of the few movies to really be shot there. And- uh, although he manages to make Mexico City look like Sao Paulo, <laughs> like because you don't think of when you think of 
slums that look like the slums you see in in Man on Fire, you think of Brazil, you think of favelas, right? Uh, and um, I don't know. I, I just always like have this again, like I mentioned with the locations uh, in D- Detroit being here in Los Angeles. I have this cognitive dissonance when I watch Man on <laughs> Fire because my brain keeps wanting me to think it takes place in 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 Brazil. Huh. Uh, anyway. Um, but uh, so there's lots of uh, anyway. This is all to say there's lots of uh, dialogue in, that's in Spanish, and even the subtitles don't stay still. They're right. like in different fonts. They're in different diving in and out of the screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I there's yeah. I, I, it, it's really um, enveloping to me when I watch it. Um, uh, but there's also a part of me that thinks like this took a while. Like <laughs> it took a lot of time in the editing room to make all this happen. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, again, um, as with other things, uh, I- I- impractical choices that he makes just from a formalist uh, or aesthetic point of view, um, like with the uh, helicopter filming the dialogue conversation, dialogue conversation, Come yeah. on. Uh, the conversation scene in Spy Game, uh, the the offices of the newspaper, I think, or is it the police station? Yeah. I think like, you're talking about the newspaper. The newspaper take place in the, like it is. That is a completely impractical location for a yeah. newspaper because it has. It's just open air, <laughs> and yet it's like people. You know, they've got it's papers on their desk. There's computers that are like, what do they do when it when it rains or when the wind blows? Yeah, and it's very expansive. Like it doesn't really <laughs> seem like this dingy city would have this newspaper <laughs> office. That's like yeah. it's almost like NASA. It's like this weirdly <laughs> expensive operation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know anything else. Uh, well, okay, so I'll say that uh, from a directorial standpoint. Okay. Um, it's going to sound strange. I, more so than almost any other of his films, I think of this as, like, he's just uh, putting out an emotion. It's, it's, it's more than a tone. It is just, like, it's as if the film itself is screaming with rage. I know that sounds strange, but it's like... The way it's like it, I mentioned earlier, the way it shakes, it's like the projector is a little mm-hmm. off. It's right. like the film cannot even be fucking contained in film. Like it just it it is so angry and so just just overflowing with angst and fury that it cannot be contained and by the director by the editor by even the projector or the or the frame and again we're getting into these uh, formalist or structuralist however you want to call it uh, choices um, because Denzel Washington is a his character Creasy is a trained uh, uh, assassin and killer um, and he's he's going about it in a very business like straightforward sense he's not showing a lot of emotion so this, this emotion you're talking about that was, right. that's within the film is what's going on what we can't see inside yeah, him yeah. absolutely and he gives us little hints of it in the things that he says mm-hmm. but he's but you know he's he's a professional and so he'll he'll keep it inside but the film can't keep it inside it is it is a very uh, it's a very expressionistic way of making a film and there are i mean the opening at least 30 minutes if not more are very quiet and mm-hmm. there's this great i mean i think the opening 10 minutes or so maybe the best thing he's, he's ever done because it's just him and walking he just seems to have appeared in mexico city there's no mm-hmm. sense of how he got there even walking's like why did you just come down here and he's just like seemed about right <laughs> um, <laughs> as if he was just like destined for this whole thing and it 
goes to them in a car talking about this assignment that Walken's pitching to him. And then it just cuts in an instant to him in the front seat of a car, clean shaven. We'd seen him with a beard and sunglasses before oh, right, right. and very businesslike. And he's just all of a sudden in control of the situation. And it's, a, I think, is an astounding choice, especially for a guy who's in other regards a maximalist. Uh-huh. Um, as uh, Manola Dargas described him, she said that, uh, you know, why show a guy lighting a cigarette once? We can show it six times. <laughs> and it's not even an important cigarette. Um, but, uh, and this gets into stuff that he'll really go crazy with Domino. Um, shooting with six to ten cameras at a time and sometimes hand crank cameras that they'll crank forward and then crank backwards causing the film to expose twice and that's where you get these crazy effects that a lot of people think are in post-production but were done right there on set in the camera so it didn't take as much time as i thought well you still got those quick cuts (laughs) Um, and uh what was i gonna say oh yeah and the six camera setup like that's the thing that's usually bemoaned is like filming all this coverage and just figuring out the editing room but what it really does is allow the actors more space to breathe it's almost it's the difference between i think like performing in a proscenium stage versus performing in the round Mm -hmm. where you're performing to all sides and you have to keep in mind that the audience in this case camera is all around you and it creates a weird dynamic that you don't see in a lot of other movies don't you wonder how he hides the cameras from each other <laughs> there's He's got ten I, cameras. I watched part of the behind the scenes of Man on Fire, and there's these crazy rigs that are like that are just cameras surrounding the actors, and somehow he's got them pitched in a certain way. That yeah, yeah. I mean, some shots are just one camera when it's yeah. Denzel Washington on a merry-go-round weird enough to create this effect where the background's passing him by, but he's standing still. I, sh- I should watch the. Um I should watch those because actually to talk go back to Ridley Scott, uh, the special features on the Black Hawk Down three disc DVD <laughs> that I have. Um, has some of the same stuff about uh, how they shot with multiple right. cameras and how uh, I, I don't know if Tony Scott is like this, but Ridley Scott is apparently uh, incredibly detail oriented in his um, storyboarding. Yeah, actually, uh, Tony Scott wakes up like two hours before every day and or woke up two hours before every day and storyboarded out every shot. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff on the fly with that many cameras operating, yeah. but um, at the same time, yeah. It almost feels like, I mean, when you describe this, like having, you know, six cameras cover it and just the way in which he, the choices that he made in post and the story that he's telling and the fact that, uh, you know, you and I have talked, uh, we, we've talked about the uh, kind of the common theme of having two characters who have a relationship. Right. It could be adversarial, like in The Fan or in Crimson Tide, or it could be like, you know, Maverick and Goose or uh, uh, the characters in True Romance. Man on Fire is, I don't know if it's the first one, but, like, it is notable that Denzel Washington is alone. Yeah. He had a relationship with Dakota Fanning. He had sort of a relationship with Christopher Walken, but he's alone. And that's worth noting because as you go on to see some of the movies that come later, like a Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3, like a Unstoppable, like he goes back to having you know relationships whereas this is about a guy who is just it's about his relationship to the world it almost it almost feels like this is like this the the seminal work like of of tony scott this is almost like his apocalypse now (laughs) uh in tone in execution and in uh content like he just really i don't know and and the fact that he is somebody that dealt so clearly in a very stylized type of violence and now he's making a film that is just as violent but is also saying like wh- why is this why is this okay what kind of toll is this taking um, it does yeah. feel like his first it feels like he just 
like he was just bursting at the seams to make this film and I, it, the film feels like it to me he'd actually um, tried to get it made right after the hunger hmm. but nobody would hire him because the hunger is insane <laughs> and uh they made a mo- italian movie of it in 1987 so his options were kind of off the table for a while until 2002 when the guy who owned the rights was like do you still want to make this he's like yeah hmm. well um uh I actually found myself thinking about Man on Fire a lot uh, last year when The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo came out because they both, to me, uh, pondered the question of whether or not... Uh, one, one of the taglines for Dra- Girl with the Dragon Tattoo was evil shall with evil be expelled. And the idea of whether or not you can justify using violence uh, to to stop violence. Mm. Um, and I think uh, Dragon Tattoo kind of tries to have his cake and eat it, eat it too in some ways by like embracing the violence but also like um, being uh, I just I don't know the, early on I think Dragon Tattoo is, is great in the way that it sh- shows violence very straightforward um, in a way that should that could be sensationalized but also kind of sickens me and I think intentionally but then uh, I don't want to spoil it but it kind of lets its character off the hook uh, at the end, it lets Lisbeth off the hook. Do you know what I'm talking I, about? Yes, I do know what you're talking about. What the hell are you talking about? Uh, anyway, like I, we had a whole episode about this, and that's what I was saying. Um, no, no, that's not what you were. If, if you're thinking that's what I'm saying, then okay, you're wrong. All right, then I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, I'm just saying in the idea of uh, whether or not it's justifiable to use violence to stop a violent person. Okay. Um, uh, I, th- I thought your point about Dragon Tattoo was that it made her uh, uh, perfect or, or made her, you know, too heroic. Uh, my problem is that toward the end, when it gets to the show with the bad guy, it doesn't give her the chance to be one or the other. I can see that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I feel like I'm going to spoil thing. Yeah, and actually that's something that's different in the original movie. That's one of the few aspects of that movie that's better than uh, Fincher's remake. Um, I never saw the original. But uh, <laughs> Man on Fire, I think, has more uh, balls, if you will, in that it actually has the guts. Like, uh, And I think that it could be a political uh, standpoint that I would n- not necessarily agree agree with. But it actually says, like, yes. Like, uh uh, yes, what Denzel is doing is justified. However, it is still going to take an irreversible toll on him. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, I, I find and, that really fascinating and a gutsy point of view. And and it does have I, spoilers for Man on Fire, I guess, but um, it does end with this kind of a strange. And it, one could say that maybe this ending is not necessarily a cop out, but uh, maybe hypocritical. But I don't think so because I think it earns it. Um, it's almost like this guy is used to taking life and that is how he solves problems. And then at the end, he realizes that that that's not going to solve this problem. No matter how many lives he's taken along the way, which is many, uh, he's going to have to actually give life this time around. And it's, yeah, yeah. let's, let's go his. ahead and say we're going to spoil Man on Fire because yeah. I think it is important to what I'm talking about. He Most of what he does, most of the violence that he uh, enacts and exacts on people is... Uh, purely out of vengeance because he is under the impression that Dakota Fanning is dead. Right. Right. Um, and then it turns out she's alive. And again, that could be a cop out, but I feel like it's almost like this metaphysical, metaphysical thing where it's like he did enough stuff to bring her back to life. (laughs) He killed enough people and was angry enough and furious enough that now she's alive again. And he gets to, he gets to save her. He earned, he earned her life. Yeah. It's, yeah. And that, and that's what I mean when I just say, like, this is a film that is just very, 
it does stick out from the other films of of Tony Scott. Like it does seem like he is pondering. When I say deeper things, I don't mean to imply that his other films are shallower or that they're not deep. But he really does seem to. I don't know. It makes sense that he was trying to make it for twenty years and he finally got to. Yeah, it feels like that. Let's um. We can it, move on. I'm sorry. Yeah, in terms of, uh, well, we're going to skip this thing, Agent Orange, because I don't know what it is. Is it short? It's another commercial. Oh, okay. Um, and speaking of deep versus shallow, let's talk <laughs> about Domino, because I think Domino is also, in a way, a movie about violence. Oh, yeah. But is, in my opinion, much more shallow about it. Because um, I think, I mean, Domino is about, uh, I, I guess, it's less personalized or internalized about violence it seems to be more about the way that violence is perceived would you say that's part uh, of it or, yeah. or presented or 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 thought of uh, in the public consciousness or whatever but it also just seems really uh, i don't know it seems like the, the the places that it gets to when it's talking about um sensationalism or or, or whatnot are opinions that i felt like i had in high school i don't think it's <laughs> I, I know I'm insulting you because this is, by the way, <laughs> listeners, this is the movie we've been talking about the whole uh, episode that's got likes. So I don't want to sound like I'm insulting you, but uh, yeah. that, that's my problem with it is that it, it, it seems uh, uh, very ju- juvenile, maybe? See, to me, Man on Fire almost feels more juvenile because it is like, you know, man, when the chips get down, you just got to take them all out and, you know, <laughs> we can redeem ourselves through brute force. Which uh-huh. it evokes beautifully, and that's why I like the movie, but it's still a, a fundamental position I disagree with. Whereas with the violence in Domino, it's completely senseless. There are moments in which the only reason people are harmed is that there was a miscommunication, uh-huh. you know? And that speaks, I mean, it's part of your worldview thing, and that speaks more to my worldview of violence that it is senseless, and that it is random, and that it probably shouldn't exist, you know, in a civilized society, certainly, but maybe not even in the natural world, and that there's just. It's an aberration almost in the movie. Okay. All right. I like that. Uh, we'll t- talk more about why you, why you, <laughs> why you like it. Uh, at first, it's fantastically entertaining. It has the wildest plot you're likely to see in a mainstream movie. And not only is it incredibly naughty, not like dirty, but like... K-N... As in a knot. Yes, K-N-O-T-T-Y. Involving the mob and casinos and the stars of 90210. It's in Brian Austin Green? Yeah. 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 Um, playing themselves. <laughs> playing themselves. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it is partially kind of a you know, satire of the celebrity system in Hollywood and all that kind of stuff. But it's also just like a complete explosion of creativity and a real pushing of the cinematic form that as much as it's based in the content in Man on Fire, I feel like Tony Scott earns it more aesthetically in Domino. And it's kind of telling of his mindset that his approach to the movie is like, well, yeah, the characters are mostly on drugs, you know, because he does a lot of research with the movies. So he hung out with actual bounty hunters uh-huh. and researching Domino. And he's like, there's no, these guys were on mescaline and coke the whole time. So this is the way to shoot this movie, right? <laughs> um, it does have a fear and loathing in Las Vegas quality. And to then it. some. Yeah. But I don't like. Um, uh, and part of it is that I'm not a big Kira Knightley fan. Oh, because I think she's incredible in the movie. <laughs> but I, I don't know. Um, I, I guess if we're. Yeah. Is, you're, one of the themes is, um, or, or motifs maybe, is the uh, the Hollywood or sensationalism, or, you know, or celebrity. Uh, maybe that's what I'm getting out of the celebrity thing. The right. way that it like um, the the domino 
in the movie is not a real person. She's <laughs> like a... She's not a real person, like in any reality. Not just the actual person she's based off of, but like. But yeah, she's like a she's a mythical version of oh, the yeah. person that she's based Absolutely. off of. And I don't know that that's sold. That that idea is sold all that well, and, and it ends up just seeming again shallow. Like I, I don't know that I'm able to, or that he's able to intellectually get across. Here's what I'm doing by presenting this character in this sort of uh, sexualized, uh, you know, uh, anti-heroic, uh, you know cool you know gun-toting chick way uh it just seems like he's presenting it that way and that it makes it seem like a uh, less intelligent movie than than the previous one yeah it feels as though um i see what you mean like it's it's as though he wants to show like this is the way you know not necessarily hollywood i guess, let's say hollywood uh hollywood would view a character like this um which is kind of you know badass all caps uh you know and that sort of thing but ultimately there's really not much there uh and that there's a a commentary quality to that but that feels like what he intends to do but what he winds up doing is that see i think that that was his intention (laughs) i mean i think surfaces are written off far too often in movies i think part of the enjoyment of a movie is seeing Karen Knightley pick up two enormous guns that she could never pick up in real life and blasting the hell out of this room. Like this is part of what movies are about is this kind of sensationalism and extravagance and just wild energy. And I think there's value in that, that people often write off. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, I, I think this is, uh, we're getting to some good places. Sorry if I'm getting a little tired here. No, that's but, all right. Um, the other thing I want to talk about the iron zeering, Brian Austin green thing is uh you know and this isn't like a sort of a deep uh, you know intellectual reading i just like think it's uh attempts at comic relief that aren't funny to me yeah i mean some of the jokes land flat and it's mostly at their their end of it yeah and i maybe it's because i'm such a comedy guy but that's one of the main memories when i think of domino i think of the unfunny parts (laughs) it feels like it's like it is when i think of domino which i haven't seen since it was a, a new release on dvd um but when I think of Domino, I do think of something that is stretched too thin. It's trying to, or spread too thin, sorry. Uh, that it's trying to do too many things. That it's trying to be legitimately violent, but also kind of have a comment on the randomness of violence. It's trying to be funny, but also kind of question why are we are laughing. It's trying to be, kind of have this reality show quality while also condemning reality. Like, it's trying to be these things, and it winds up doing none of them well. Uh, I can give it, I can and do give it points for ambition. Um, but at the same as opposed you know like David and I have talked about like movies that that are ambitious uh, but also maybe a little cynical about their ambition like they feel like ambition is enough and if I just try to do this thing then I don't need to put the effort in elsewhere and I, Richard Kelly's next movie would bear that out <laughs> okay well, what is that Southland Tales oh okay indeed. <laughs> um, but uh, but I do think this is a film that is that is sincere and ambitious and good for him but I think unsuccessful because I think it might wind, wind up being successful in one of those areas at the, to the detriment of the others uh, uh, and I think you're getting at why um, uh, that, that's why I say Last Boy Scout and Not Domino is my least favorite Tony Scott movie because okay. as much as I don't like Domino I really do have respect for what he was trying to do i just think mm-hmm. it didn't work and i have respect me. for what Kira knightley is doing as an actress i feel like you know it's kind of kind of ballsy for her to take that take that role coming off pride and prejudice right <laughs> you know and just uh 
recognizing that it's not going to it's not the type of role that's going to bring her a lot of glory it's going it's the type of role that's going to just cause a lot of people to be like what what yeah and that and at at best um <laughs> and uh so i i applaud her for that um but i just and i also didn't get much of a sense of i i recognize that i'm i'm approaching this in in kind of a character in kind of a character way um but and david is not gonna like what i'm about to say <laughs> This almost has a public enemies quality to me, <laughs> uh, where it it's about these characters, kind of, yeah. but it more uses them as a tool towards these other things. That's all well and good, but it is also... I don't that, know why you think I'm not going to... I completely agree. Okay, all right. That's why I love public enemies. I know, but enemies. you like public enemies, but you don't like Domino. Because, I just I, because again, I think it's... Uh, I just think Domino is unsuccessful when it's trying to Okay. Um, and to me, it's just, I feel like... Whether the character is based on a true story or not, I don't care about that. But like, um, it, somehow it just it feels disingenuous to me. Like, if you want this to be quote unquote about your character, regardless of what you think that character might be, whether you want it to be a comment on who on who we think the character is or who you actually think the character is, whatever that might be, if the film is ostensibly in any way about that character then you have an obligation to make it not totally about that character, but more about that character. And I feel like Domino fails in that regard. I don't know who Domino is. I don't know who Mickey Rourke is. I don't know who uh, Edgar I get a strong Ramirez sense is. of who Mickey Rourke is. Get- well, that might be a function of Mickey Rourke. <laughs> and just like, oh, yeah. No, he's uh, great at yeah. almost everything. Yeah. And so, like, it's... And again, this is not a problem also, that I have with the movie. And also just it's Mickey Rourke just being a foreboding presence as a person. Right. But um, it's... Uh, I don't get a strong sense of who they are, and I wish that I, I, I wish that I did, and that would have made everything else more palatable to me. Because while I'm all for, ca- I mentioned uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, right? This does feel a lot like it feels like an action Fear and Loathing in Las <laughs> Vegas, but I know who Raúl Duke is. Yeah, I know who Doctor Gonzo is. Like I get a strong, though I don't like them. <laughs> I get a strong sense of who they are, and while they are, and they are a horrible anchor in the midst of all this chaos um, and uh, and I feel like maybe that's what Domino for me what Domino was missing and what kept it from being because if it had a central and as I've said before that's what a character can be um, especially as ostensibly dynamic a character as Domino is they provide at least a point from which to deviate from you know in in every in any direction you know it feels like to put it in math terms (laughs) which I feel totally comfortable doing um, Domino is a is a movie of variables with no constant which can be kind of kind of fun in theory but for me completely unsatisfying I find her fairly constant I'm as a someone running from her past and you know uh, uh Seeing through some of the bullshit, but buying into some of the other stuff, and I, I think Karen Knightley does a lot with the role, especially. But I think a lot of it is on the I, page. I think she does a lot with the role, but and I, maybe it's maybe it's that I think there is a compelling aspect to her story, so compelling, in fact, that part of me's like, do that. <laughs> like, I but it's, but it's, that's not what the movie's doing. You're exactly, criticizing it for something it isn't. I'm going to sound like I'm on Scott's side here, <laughs> even though I still don't like the movie. Okay. But I think that's um, just. Uh, uh, your own tastes coming in where I, I think you first and foremost go to a movie to be told a story. Uh, I, I think that's the biggest thing for you. I mean, characters first and foremost, but you expect a story. Mm, if it's to sense. a certain extent. I mean, um, character usually is, is, is yeah. it. A story doesn't have to happen. You know, I'm a big fan of secret honor. I mean, what is right, that? Right. Yeah. But, uh, 
I guess I, I, I still think that you, um, and we've talked about this before, your tastes or, or your sort of interpretation or the reason you like film has more to do with um, uh, a, a, a more classical uh, idea of drama. Mm-hmm. And, and it probably comes stories and characters, and I think that uh, cinema is um, not necessarily about that. That's just one of the things that it can do. And I think that it's uh, you know it's interesting. Um, I think some of this comes from the fact that I was an actor first, mm-hmm. and so I tend to think, and then then a writer, and then a film critic. You know, and so like I was, so I think that naturally excuse me towards character dialogue and to a lesser extent story um but uh it is one of those things where it's like uh, and for a long time i uh, and we brought this up when i when we talked with uh, matthias um i would apologize for character for for my love of character as yeah. though that is less when it comes to film now while admittedly character is more drama which could be theater and it, that's not what makes film film that's fine when it comes to basic storytelling I, as, as time has gone on i realize that character can be a tool just like anything else and, and it can be used to sell the reality of a film uh to me or to other people but certainly to me um <laughs> and so it can be just as useful as as uh, as a cinema uh cinematographical choice <laughs> and an editorial choice I like um, that. and so uh and and i think this w- this is what gets uh this is one of the things that bothers me about domino is that it wants to use it uses the character only insofar as like well we don't want to have the character be totally just nothing so we will include these elements of her past so that we can sort of cheat a little bit and get you at least a little bit interested in the character so that we can then veer off and leave the character behind and i don't think I she ever gets like, left behind i mean oh she's in the she's in the frame but no, I, uh, <laughs> but i think the film leaves her behind i think the film loses interest in favor of whatever the hell it wants to do and it, it uses the character and i think in that way it cheats the character and again this is not a function of the character being based on a real person yeah because a lot of people have a problem with that aspect. right that doesn't bother me um it's uh it's just it's one of those things like i don't like a film that wants to have you know as 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 david says like the idea of a film wanting to have its cake and eat it too it it wants the it wants you to be interested in this character only so far as that it gets its foot in the door and then it's like all right moving on Hmm. we're gonna do whatever we want to do now yeah and and so if a film's gonna be about character great it can be about any of these other things as well, but like, if you don't, if you're not interested in the character, just don't be interested. I don't know. Uh, I, I think her character served just as well as in any other mainstream action movie, if not better. And his formal aspects are far exceeding, you know, the Amazing Spider-Man, which has paper thin characters. I'm not following you. <laughs> joking, is of course. As well, pretentious as in, movies get, but um, I want to get that, into what I liked about the Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, that's fine. And um, as you know, and as you know, my, you know. I was never I was never bored by Domino. Whereas, as I've said on the show before, the Amazing Sp- Spider-Man is the definition of I don't give a shit. Yeah. Uh, um, in in any movie I've seen. But lately. my point is just that there's certain action movie tropes, and it's fine for me that her character is paper thin or mm-hmm. slightly more rounded than that. Mm-hmm. Insofar as you know, the thrills that Tony Scott uses, which aren't you know traditional action movie thrills, they're purely the stuff of film. As far as pushing the mu- medium forward and 
kind of redefining the idea of moving images. He'll take a frame and then move aspects of that frame across mm-hmm. the screen while still keeping in that frame. Uh, and you can't even... I mean, people talk about the quick cutting, but you couldn't even tell where the cuts are in this movie. Yeah, it's yeah. insane, you know? The movie I mean, itself uh, is a cut. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, the movie just moves, you know? It just Let's, keeps uh, moving. Uh, speaking of keeping moving, let's. Uh, I want to move on, but I also uh, nice. one, one more question about Domino. Yeah, the stuff with Tom Waits. What's up with that? <laughs> Can that be said about <laughs> everything regarding Tom Waits? Ever? Yeah, I mean, his use in the movie is not that different from his use in Rumblefish, where he's just like this Greek chorus standing behind a diner and just mumbling weird things to move the movie along. Yeah. Or you the know, Fisher King. Tom Waits plays this type of role. Oh yeah, a lot. he's great at it. Um, yeah. He shows up to add some weird moral stakes to the movie that yeah. it doesn't really uh, am I the only one who's seen Seven Psychopaths so far nah, oh, yeah I really want to I didn't know you saw it I haven't yeah. seen it yet same thing yeah oh I have no doubt I hope so <laughs> yeah but yeah and then he drives them off to Las Vegas and they're just tran- metaphysically just transported to Las Vegas when they need to be there okay well um uh, you guys can move on to the rest of the episode without me because Domino's the last Tony Scott <laughs> film I ever saw okay so right. uh, I'll just name the things Deja okay. Vu alright have you not uh, seen it I saw a part of it at a at a at my uncle's house, and then uh, his baby started screaming, and I uh, oh yeah got distracted. So um, um, go ahead. Deja Vu has, especially since Tony Scott's death, been suddenly championed as his best movie, and I almost agree with that. Uh, there was an article that magazine Cinemascope put out as an online magazine. They put it out, I want to say in like 2011 or so, 2010, in which they declared it Tony Scott's Vertigo. And there are hmm. certainly elements of Vertigo carrying it. It's about, um, ostensibly, this uh, this uh, ATF agent played by Denzel Washington trying to solve this explosion on this ferry this in is the Orleans. third of five times they worked together, by the way. We haven't right. mentioned that. Yeah. yeah. And they didn't work together. They only worked together in Crimson Tide before the 2000s. Then for Man on Fire on, he was in almost every movie. Mm-hmm. Um but he's trying to solve this explosion on this ferry. Uh, and in the process, he discovers this body that washes ashore that looks like it was part of the explosion. But through, you know, various chemical analysis and stuff, they discover that she was murdered before the explosion and made to look as though she was just part of the explosion. So he figures, you know, you solve this murder, you solve the rest of the case. So that is a very smart way of repurposing the story to what it's really about, which is Denzel Washington falling in love with a dead woman. <laughs> Um, and the way in which he does this is he's introduced in this world in which time travel is almost possible. They have a window in which they can see into exactly four hours and six hours, four days and six hours into the past. Uh, and whatever happens then, they can look anywhere in this given area. But um, so they start to follow this woman and figure she, eventually she can meet up with the guy who blew up the ferry. And in the process of following her, Denzel Washington just starts to fall in love with her even though she's been dead. And the way they play this is much more subtle than it is in Vertigo, but it's still an element there. And they there's a long, drawn-out scene in which they start following this woman uh, until eventually it's discovered that uh, Denzel Washington just risks it and decides to try to go back in time through this portal that they've created. And so suddenly he's there with this woman he's already fallen in love with and kind of gets her to fall in love with him somehow and it, this speaks to again the metaphysical thing I was talking about that they have this connection that was made through this bridge in the past that is invisible but is still tangible in this weird emotional way um, and that's really what the movie's about it doesn't take its time travel element that seriously it plays it for you know 
kind of cheap entertainment gags where you're like, oh, that's how that got there. Um, but the way in which they finally solve the conflict isn't really built in the story in a strong way. And the actual threat isn't really that much of a threat. There's some there's an incredible chasing in the middle of the movie in which uh, Denzel Washington uses these goggles that lets him see the window into the past. And he's chasing a car in the past, but in the present. And so he's seeing the car's movements and also having to dodge real time traffic. So that's just a cool like entertainment gag. But yeah. it's really just about this guy trying to get back to this past that he didn't even know existed and suddenly is the focus of his life. Is it I really I really liked what I saw. When I saw it, I don't know why I haven't returned to it because it was really interesting yeah. and a good performance, too. Is it is it more calm than Man on Fire and Domino? Oh, yeah, big okay. time. It, the opening six, maybe even ten minutes are completely silent. There's no dialogue. Mm. I mean, not, there's no explosions, but <laughs> there's no dialogue. <laughs> um, there's one explosion, but uh, yeah, and they use a Beach Boys song, uh, Don't Worry Baby, that kind of the course of the song is don't worry baby everything will turn out all right Mm -hmm. which kind of gets at this idea of fate and that the past is or the future is redefinable anything else you want to say about deja vu uh that's all i got off the top of my head okay good let's move on then (laughs) i want to he directed in between deja vu and taking a poem one two three he did an episode of numbers which uh, i just wanted to mention that um Tony Scott and Ridley Scott through Scott Free Productions uh, also were in the business of producing television. Yeah. And they did Numbers, which is not a show that I watched, but I um, uh, heard good things about. But they also do The Good Wife, which is great. Oh, okay. uh, all right. Um, taking a pill on one, two, three. You guys both saw this one. Yeah. Go ahead. I just okay. talked my mouth off. Uh, so, of course, I am a big fan of the original film uh, with uh, Walter Matthau and Robert Shaw, among others. And uh, when I saw that Tony Scott was remaking. I was like, oh, man, I bet this is not going to be that good. Um, and it isn't. But I can't write it off uh, easily. Um, th- there are there are elements to it that I would venture to say I really like, if not love. They're, they are uh, character elements. But they do, it does go to this this thing that you're talking about, this idea of, this, of a relationship that it, when two people come together it seems like they always were going to like they just they they were spiritually connected long before they even knew each other uh physically um not to imply these characters uh (laughs) get together um but uh so i like that and i do i do like that uh i think i think the nature of who tony scott is uh, was as a as a director uh really lent really lent itself to a certain type of action movie which is uh the clock's running. Yeah. And taking Pelham 1, 2, 3, the nature of it is like, you know, we're going to kill people. We're going to, unless we get our money by a certain time, we're going to start killing people. And so it's like, we got to get, we got to make this happen. And, and because of the type of, the way his films are, are edited, you know, he has to show, he's good at showing a lot of things happening at once. Uh, and so there's the idea of like, well, there's this subway train that has been, taken over and then there's the there's the various city employees you know cops politicians engineers all of them have to get together to make this work and so he manages to show all of this happening at once and i think he's a he he, it it works for the most part um is that the same in the original is that yeah there's yeah they're both movies about civil servants and civic pride and uh, yeah. Is that an underlying theme? Yeah. And it, going into Unstoppable, yeah, he takes a very, you know, 
yeah. union friendly and pro labor bent to it. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that. In a yeah, moment, yeah. Because I feel like that. Well, okay, get to that in a minute. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, there are two main characters in Taking of Pelham One, Two, Three. Uh, it's it's unfortunate. One of the things I like about the original is how much of an ensemble it is. Um, have you ever seen the original? No, I haven't. Oh boy, it's good stuff. <laughs> um, because it, it it's this weird backdoor approach to like a, a caper movie in which uh, there's surprising comedy with a. a uh, the mayor who's almost completely uh, comic relief because he's <laughs> he has a cold and he doesn't want to deal with this. <laughs> um, whereas in the new one, he's played by James Gandolfini as a guy who is uh, who takes this very seriously and and it's a very uh, subdued performance by Gandolfini. But and I think his character has a nice payoff there at the end. But um, yeah. But I think that's I think compared to the original, I think that's to the film's detriment is that like. It takes. It basically makes only two three-dimensional characters, and then everybody else is just who you know. Who cares? Um, and that's unfortunate. And of course, like almost any other movie, it wastes Luis Guzman. But um, <laughs> I think most movies waste him by not casting him. I would that's say. A, yeah, you know what? I agree. I agree. That's my big problem with Moneyball. <laughs> so um, the. Uh, uh, but the, it, but it does have between John Travolta as the main uh, you know hijacker and Denzel Washington as the uh, city official that he's uh, on the phone with. Um, it, those scenes, there's such chemistry, and they're not in the same frame. Right, they're not in the in the same setting. And Denzel Washington apparently like made John Travolta stay away from him during the shooting until they finally met up. Okay, yeah, all right. Um, and there's such a there's such chemistry there, and it, the way it's written and the way both actors, you know, I think John Travolta, I think has has lost a step or two, yeah, um, or three or four or five um, <laughs> during uh, over the last several years. But he is clearly interested in the character that he's playing in Taking Pelham One Two Three and the relationship, and the way that this guy locks into Denzel Washington's character uh, in a in an almost Lecter Starling type <laughs> way. Um, I responded to quite a bit, and I do like that uh, Denzel Washington plays a character that is flawed and does seem, for somebody who has as much as much genuine star power as a Denzel Washington, it, I do find it interesting how, maybe not easily, but how readily he can strip himself of that and yeah. play just kind of a regular flawed guy, as he does in Taking Pelham 1, 2, 3. Um, but I think more so than anything, it has all the all the the, the familiar. Uh, I won't say tricks; that sounds wrong. <laughs> but uh, you know, tropes of uh, of a Tony Scott film. But I really wanted to emphasize that that idea of these two souls that are on opposite sides uh, of of the law and of this situation. But they do seem drawn to each other. And then I, the film's relatively recent, so I won't spoil it. But when the two finally do meet up, um, it's it's a, I find it to be a very fascinating scene. Yeah, because it doesn't. It seems like a scene that doesn't belong in this film. It seems like something bigger than this film. Uh, but at the same time, it's to Tony Scott's credit that it doesn't seem like it's sticking out like a sore thumb. It does. It's a scene that makes you look over the, re- the the film that has come before it and realize that it is it was all leading to this point uh, emotionally and of course as far as the story. Um, so the movie is not very good, 
but it does have at its core something that's pretty solid and pretty well executed. What did you think? I because I think the core is strong. I think the movie's strong, and I think mm-hmm. it's executed fairly strongly too. It's, there's a lot of tension in the movie, and he uh, there's more of the script, but he inserts the writer Brian Hel- Hel- yeah, I can never say the name Helgen Hel- Helgeland Helgeland yeah. uh, inserts a lot of miniature conflicts within the larger conflict. And sometimes it gets a little absurd, like during when they're trying to deliver the money, cars just start flipping over <laughs> out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's effective. Um, and, yeah, I mean, people who know me know that I rant long and often about how most modern entertainment is very bogged down in epic stories of heroes' journeys. And I like that this one, by the time the credits are done, the plot's in motion. And they're already on the train hijacking it. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, it doesn't really let up, you know. It keeps reminding you of the countdown but keeps engaging you either through the video, visual style and Tony Scott starts running like trains in the background when he needs to ramp up the tension in the underground tunnel and there's a lot of interesting stuff on display it is at its core just a basic entertainment but it's executed I think very strongly and I think from us and it's I forgot that uh, Brian Helgeland uh, wrote it but now that you mention it there are things um, I was going to mention this with uh, with Domino and I will mention it with Unstoppable uh, from a from a character standpoint, when stuff is like revealed about what mo- what might motivate this person, uh, a lot of action movies tend to just kind of have this perfunctory thing where it's just like, so uh, you know, you got kids, yeah. you know, so <laughs> it, it, that that kind of that kind of thing. Um, and uh, I think, and Domino, that's ultimately like anything interesting about the character that that is meant to develop the character felt perfun- eventually felt perfunctory mm-hmm. because I think they left the character behind, but. I think because of this, the structure of taking of Pelham one two three, all the all the baggage that Denzel Washington's character has, I think, is revealed in a very in a really good way. Yeah, um, and handles very well in the story. Very well, and and some of that you know comes with the uh, the nature of their relationship, and so you can let the characters talk a little bit more. Um, but it, it really, uh, I don't know. I, I really connected with that character. And less so John Travolta's, but I really connected with uh, Denzel Washington's character. So it's not a film. I know people that were like almost hate the movie. And yeah. It's like, well, I can't bring myself to hate it. Uh, I, there are things about it that I really like. Uh, by and large, I don't like to like assign a like a, a star rating to to things, right. but it does make for an, a nice shorthand. Um, <laughs> so like people use them. Yeah. So like out of four stars, I'd probably go like two and a half. Right. So um, and just speak on the exposition tack. Uh, I really like Gandalfini's performance in the movie and. He finally turns into a sympathetic character. He's kind of an asshole for the most of the movie, but yeah. then his final turn is when he realizes that John Travolta's character is this case study he used about Wall Street greed back when he was running mm-hmm. his election, and he starts to finally get on board because he has a stake in it. Yeah, and in some ways that's still selfish, but it kind of gives this character an extra dimension. Yeah, it does. It does, does exposition make him, and character work at the same time. Yeah, it does make him a three-dimensional character by the end. Yeah. Um, so um, okay, unstoppable, unstoppable. <laughs> I bet you love it, don't you? Did you see it, Tyler? I did. All right. I like I'm, it a lot. I okay. seen this one. Yeah. Do you not? Uh, I like it. I think it's a very good, functional film. Yeah, exactly. And it's a film that, I know this sounds weird. David and I re- return to this a lot. It's a film that doesn't overstay its welcome. Right. Gets in, gets done. Oh. Here's your credits. Yeah. I like that. I appreciate that greatly. Um, it understands, hey, we've all got places to be. <laughs> um, so, uh, but that's one where, I, from a character standpoint, I... I it does feel perfunctory like where it's just like uh he's got uh, uh daughters i guess so you care about him right 
Yeah, Denzel is, but Chris Pine's character is... He's all right. Yeah, I can't remember his exact backstory, but it was something to do with, like... He was, like, violent in his household or something? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's a deep, uh, very much a flawed, yeah, flawed for sure. guy. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, and it, it was fun seeing comedian T.J. Miller and uh, Ethan Supley <laughs> early on in the film as the guys who caused the unstoppable train. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, through their, uh, their fuck-up. But, um, but, yeah, I feel like this, this is not unlike Crimson Tide. The nature of the story, admittedly, like, you see a lot of people, you know, running around uh, trying to stop it, but the, the characters that like the main characters are on the train. Yeah. And so it will always return to that. And that's where the action takes place. And because a train, not unlike a submarine, it's, there's only so many things you can do with it. It is. It's even more limited. Yeah. It's going in one direction. One direction. (laughs) And so like, it's, uh, so I, I feel like, um, that's a nice, that's, we, we, we've now started talking about this core. That's a nice core to the film and it allows him to really kind of, do all of his uh, Tony Scott stuff, <laughs> uh, but with but always moving forward. Yeah. you know, uh, much like the train itself. Um, that's what I liked about it. What did you What did you like about it? Very much the same things. I mean, it's a very basic setup, and it does exactly what yeah. you would want it to do. And this is to Tony Scott's credit that he employs very little CGI throughout the entire movie. It's mm-hmm. shot on a real train that's really going really fast. Yeah, and you can see it going by. You know, with the background going by and the actors having to overcome the physical elements of the shooting mm-hmm. and that's something that was true throughout his entire career he barely used cgi um deja vu is probably the most use of it but it's only where you'd absolutely have to use it um and it really comes to fruition in unstoppable where it's just two guys on a train and that's how they made it yeah that's fascinating to think yeah about. yeah it's worth watching it's you know it was a fairly well-reviewed movie i think because of this where it's just like it's not a film with a lot of pretensions it's just a story about there is no hey you know uh seven-year-old uh, Tyler Smith watching uh, Top Gun would not have liked <laughs> Unstoppable because there is no villain. Um, the villain is just... It's just a bunch of people coming together to for a common good. Yeah. Which is stop the Unstoppable train. <laughs> I think they. I think from a story element they do layer on some things that just like, can it just be enough that this train is going really fast and is going to ruin something? Like, does it have to have like... It's not like nuclear waste or something like that. Or is it oh, nuclear the, well, waste? No, they go by nuclear waste at one point. Is that what it was? Or maybe the train's like heading towards it. But okay. uh, yeah, nuclear waste does come into play. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, come on, guys. Like, I understand you gotta up the stakes, but the stakes are pretty upped already. Yeah. But it's fine. Whatever. It, it is funny to me that the film got so well reviewed um and people were like it's a return to form and even though that form was ridiculed you know 15 20 years ago mm-hmm. <laughs> and makes me think and hope that his wilder touches in his mid-2000s movies will be similarly embraced and i do think as a way of, of wrapping this up and i don't mean to sound morbid but i do think the nature of him of his death and the fact that he died early might cause people to instinctively give him a second look where it already has before yeah and part of that's kind of frustrating to me who's been a fan of his for so long (laughs) and people who i was arguing with about tony scott like not even a month you liked him before it was cool there's that but people i was arguing with a month before his death are suddenly like yeah man there's stuff going on there and so it is kind of frustrating i know it's kind of a hipster thing to say but we've all been there guys come on yeah yeah (laughs) all right um you can find us at battleshippretension.com where i'm writing uh most of the reviews apparently um (laughs) 
You can email us, david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Follow me at The Pretension and follow Tyler at More Lessons, which is the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which is at morethanonelesson.com. My other podcast is the, I say weekly, but the When I Feel Like It television uh, wrap-up show previously on. That's at previouslyonshow.com. Scott, where can people find you and your work on the internet? Uh, largely at BattleshipRetention.com and also at my own... I also write for Criterion Cast, actually. Uh, yeah. I feel like they're kind of a sister show to this one, you know? We're, they're not. We're all, <laughs> they're <okay>. competing. <laughs> <laughs> but we're all quite friendly, I would say. Um, I and guess. then my oh, yeah, own dude. personal blog at uh, railoftomorrow.com. That's R-A-I-L of tomorrow.com. And I just want to say, finally, that I didn't mean to be petty there at the end. I do like that Tony Scott's getting appreciation, but, <laughs> yeah, y- you know. Um, uh, well, speaking and, of being petty... Uh, something an announcement I meant to uh, to to bring up earlier, Tyler. How does it feel to be the only person at this table who is not a member of the Online Film Critics Society? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, you made it! Oh. Yes, yeah, so finally. Nice. Oh, that's very I, exciting. I was, uh, yeah, I'm I'm in now. Uh, it feels uh, terrible, <laughs> but here's the thing: also appropriate because I am a fraud <laughs> so i mean you heard you heard all that big song and dance about character uh that makes me less than sure yeah so yeah. i mean if the online cr- film critic society like if they heard that they'd be like banned for life yeah start liking cinematography jag why don't yeah. you go write theater reviews why don't you be a yeah. part of the online theater critic society <laughs> which i'm sure is a flowering organization <laughs> everything i said yeah, is true yeah. oh yeah why well, don't we you step, step, step up into the uh the, the step up to the intellectual heights that is expected of an online film <laughs> absolutely <laughs> absolutely absolutely um, and at my website uh, shortly after this episode goes up I'll be posting a sort of a supplement to this of images from Tony Scott's films that are just too weird to describe <laughs> um, and I'll be going into those in a little bit in depth I'll post a link to that in the weird comments. thing is Tom yeah. Waits is in all of them <laughs> but, oh yeah uh, I want to uh, I want to look at that alright um, and then uh, real quick sorry everybody for the next week you can still go in, go to podcastawards.com and submit Battleship Pretension in the movie category. While you're there, head on over to the religion category and uh, submit more than one lesson. You have another week to do that. Um, as I have said, I, I said this on more than one lesson. As I've said, uh, the awards don't really mean much, but they have allowed, uh, at, at least for me personally, through more than one lesson, they have allowed, they have allowed some neat opportunities uh, and relationships with other podcasts. So, uh, so there are good things that can come from it, <laughs> though not the awards themselves. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So that's for the next week. Uh, all right. Scott, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.